0: Hey, Cat Sherman, and all your listeners. I just moved to uh, the Aberdeen area in Washington. And I
1: just went on a nice run in the forest with intentions to jump in Lake Sylvia.
0: And now I'm like, super hot and I'm looking at the lake and it is so gross. It's like full of tannins. But I got to enjoy a beautiful forest hike where the... <laughs> anytime there is a creek, there's a kitty in the forest, like a, a human cat.
1: Um, anytime there was a little creek, the forest got really cool, and it felt real nice. Um, I just had to come clean about something I had kind of said over a voice memo a few months ago. I barked at a harbor seal, and I have since learned the hard way that they do not in fact bark anyhow. just moved to Aberdeen. If anyone listens to your podcast from here, find me on ig at wheres dot Cheers. Thank you for including your Instagram handle. I want more of you good people to meet each other. So, if any of you are listening from aberdeen, uh hit up Annie on Instagram and uh maybe you can go for a hike. You've got a beautiful little thing going on, and uh having you send in the voice memos and including your Instagram handle is the best way that I know how to get you guys to meet each other so uh, you can send me a voice memo on your phone, just record it in the voice memos app, keep it under a minute, let me know who you are, where you're listening from, what the surroundings look like, where you are, and uh, if you want to connect with people in your area, um, include your Instagram handle. Also, Annie, I'm fairly certain that Harbor Seals do bark, because those things are dogs with flippers, and they'll come at you. So, bark away. i I hear it's the best defense against harbor seals. Better than bear spray. I've been carrying bear spray with me nonstop for the last month. It's a new thing. To to you know, you go you go out on a hike, what do you bring? You bring some water, maybe you bring your phone. In Montana you also bring bear spray. Even if you're just gonna go down to the river for a little fly fish. The other night I went out scouting for, for on a hunt. And I was like, yeah, I'm by myself out in the wilderness. Going to get all into the wild. I made it like three quarters of a mile in, and I was going through fairly thick brush. And just a few days prior, a Montana local named James, the badass hunter, was like, "Uh, Big No-No is walking through tall brush with lots of bushes because that's where bears hang out. So I uh, just ignored his vice completely and was making my way through this brush out into an opening. And then I felt down at my waist, realized that I forgot my bear spray. And that little relaxing jaunt quickly turned into a white-hot flash of panic. And I was sure that at that moment, Mama Grizz was going to descend on me and rip my jugular out of my anus. And that would be the end of me. So... Slowly walked back to the car, grabbed the bear spray. And then I didn't even go out and hike again, I just stayed in my RV, clutching my bear spray. I actually do have bear spray right next to my bed, because sometimes, sometimes it's a little, I get a little twitchy in the RV. You, You know, you're sleeping in new spots, you don't know if some crazy hell's angle's Hell's Angles, the Hell's Angles, Spiker Gang, come out and try and take you for all of your uh, backpackers' pantry dried goods. <laughs> That's all I got, guys. A little podcast set up and some <laughs> Nutrigrain bars. So I keep bear spray next to my bed. Uh, but I have seen videos of bear spray deployed, and it looks... Kind of like a grenade going off, so it's going to be one of those situations where, if the hell's angles come in and try and take me down, we're all going down in a fit of tears. But now, having a good time, traveling they say is like psychedelics, which I agree with it it takes you to far out mental spaces, but like psychedelics. It's also, it puts you in a sensitive place. It can go either way. And I have these wild swings of, of feeling like I'm, I'm on the top of the world. Or on top of a mountain. Or on top of something great. And then I get back to my RV. And I'm all alone. And I get lonely. Loneliness is weird. But you know what's weird about loneliness? It's only lonely if you're seeking others, right? Because the one thing I found helpful is I can can kind of flip it, you know? Do a meditation. Be like, I'm here right now. Don't worry about how your life is going to turn out. Or the fact that you're clutching bear spray alone in an RV, some dirt road deep in Montana. Just worry about how your shoulders feel. how your back feels breathe through your nose and out through your nose that tends to help reading also helps i never feel lonely when i'm reading because i'm with the author i'm going to recommend a book to y'all right now it's called the way of the superior man and it's the september book for my book club so if you want to join you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash book club. link to it below. And each month, I will send you a book that I love and some potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture. And thank you to everyone who's joined this club. It's a real fun group. We've got a WhatsApp group uh, thread going. People can share ideas about the book, uh, feedback, recommendations for new books. So if you want to get more reading in your life, and if The Way the Superior Man sounds like an interesting one to you... Uh, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf. Check it out. And if you just want to get more CBD in your life on your own, just go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off any order. That's scmedicinals.com. I also want to let you know about RPM Training Company. RPM Training Company makes functional fitness gear. And I love it, all right? I use their workout shorts, I use their jump ropes, and it's just badass, well-made equipment, all right? Their, their jump ropes are infamous in the workout and CrossFit world. They, they just designed a rope that works right, all right? I, forever, you know, I'd go to workouts and they'd have those janky-ass ropes on the wall. They would never fit right. They would be all twisted up, you know? And it, it, it breaks your rhythm when you're trying to do a workout with a jump rope and it just doesn't allow you to get going, it's, you know, it's like a generator that won't start. But at RPM Training Company, they make just sleek, durable, well-made ropes. All right? And uh, you can get 10% off by typing in the code name KYLE10 at checkout on any jump rope at RPM Training Company. And I will link to their page below. They are a Los Gatos space company just over the hill from Santa Cruz. Uh, and I've been using their equipment for years, even before they became a sponsor on this show. Um, but I'm really happy to make this partnership happen with them. And I would love for you to get more workout equipment in your life. Just getting more workouts in your life. But also the jump rope is so great because it's light. You can take it with you wherever you go. Even if you just want to do a little 10-minute pick-me-up at, you know, in your office, you know, okay, we're at break. I want to get the heart rate going. Bust out the jump rope. Twist. I can do the twist now on the jump rope. That's exciting. I don't know what it's called, where you twist your arms, and it goes, makes you look cool. Uh took a second for me to learn, but uh, I got it now. So head over to RPM Training Company, type in the code name Kyle Tenet at checkout, and get 10% off. This episode of the podcast is with a super fit dude. He probably loves RPM Fitness. guarantee you he has one of their jumper, jump ropes. Dr. Paul Celadino has an 8-pack. That's on his profile. No, it's not. Um, he is <laughs> he's the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity chronic inflammation and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous podcasts, including The Minimalist, The Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, Ben Greenfield podcast. He speaks at lots of places. He's super smart. He's actually so smart that it was a little uh, in this podcast. I, I was like, I wish... I had more material to come back at him with, right? Because there's so much, so many different ideas around health, right? And I'm not a scientist. So in this episode, I let him lay it out. Um, I feel good when I eat healthy meat. Um, And he only eats health. He only eats meat. I hung out with him for a whole day and I ate what he ate. I ate raw liver and I ate, a uh, a steak with salt on it. And that was it. Um, I st- I still have spices and veggies even after this podcast. I ate some M&Ms about 10 minutes ago. Not going to lie. But if you want to get healthier, um, if you want to change up your diet, maybe this is uh, something that could help you. So please welcome to the show the brilliant Dr. Paul Celadino. All right. And away we go. Well, first off, thanks to Kyle Kingsbury for making this intro. Thanks to Kyle. He good is, to be here. He is a good dude. The yeah. Amazing dude. The man with the eight pack and uh, <laughs> the biggest smile on earth. Exactly. I miss Kyle. Kyle, shout out to
0: you right now, brother. Yeah. So how did you meet Kyle? Kyle and I podcasted. I think Kyle heard an episode of my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health, that I did with Rob Wolf, talking about diet and health. And Kyle and I had been kind of in similar health, interesting circles. And he heard that episode and reached out to me and then came down to San Diego. And we podcasted together and got to shoot bows and hang out. And ever since then, it's been a good bromance.
1: Nice. Have you guys been on a hunt together?
0: We've never. Yes, we have been on a hunt together. Yeah, we hunted in January in Junction, Texas. What were you guys going for? Well, everything that's out there. On that hunt, it was whitetail. We didn't see any pigs, but yeah, we got a bunch of whitetail. Nice. Great. Yeah, we both... Kyle and I hunted with Bo and everybody else was using rifles.
1: How long have you been hunting?
0: I mean, uh, technically I've been hunting for seven or eight years, but really I hunted for a year in Flagstaff when I was there many years ago, working as a physician assistant in cardiology. And then I took a long break and then have just gotten back into it in the last year or so.
1: Nice. So what does it look like when you get an animal and you take that meat home? I would imagine that it's a little different than what your average hunter takes home.
0: It definitely looks different. And I mean, it's a very spiritual thing for me. I've spoken about this a lot in the past. I, The, the two times that I've taken an animal in the wild have been some of the most memorable experiences in my life and almost sacramental. It's this constant reminder to me to be a good human because it, it just really pulls me into that circle of life, for lack of a better, less cheesy term, immediately. And it's this keen awareness that An animal has in some ways given itself to me that I have an incredible amount of uh, bounty in front of me and it engenders a lot of gratitude within me that I get to eat this most nutritious food on the planet. And we can talk about why I think that is and my ideas around animal-based diets. But I do think that eating animals is something that our ancestors have done for millions of years, that it is the most nutritious food on the planet and it's something that they celebrated and sought out preferentially. And so when I've been able to do that, it's been this clear reminder and this clear sort of beacon of, wow, I'm really lucky to get to do this. I want to use this animal meat and organs to be a good human, to be kind to people, to share ideas that will help people lead more enjoyable lives. So it's this constant reminder of just this, this need or this responsibility that I have by consuming these animals to lead a well-lived life. Functionally, it looks like me eating the entire animal. I'm very interested in in this and I think that there's so many unique nutrients throughout the whole animal. Things like liver, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, organs people don't eat so much anymore that we've gotten away from. But that historically, we certainly ate that indigenous cultures all prize and treasure and hold in great regard because of their unique nutrient value relative to muscle meat. So I ate the whole animal on the hunt that I was on with Kyle in Junction in um, West Texas in January, we we did butcher the animal ourselves and we ate the whole animal and we did it respectfully. We all kind of shared in the heart fresh and raw. And then we shared in the liver fresh and raw. And and we consumed basically every piece of that animal there was after the hunt and on the hunt. And we took it all home and we took the organs home and both to honor the animal to, to use it fully and also to consume the unique nutrients there.
1: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, the nutrients of, uh, let's just say the heart I've eaten, uh, part of a pig heart before very rich. Yeah. I could only have a little bit of it. And I was like, "Whoo! this is enough for me because it tastes very different than say the ham of a pig.
0: You know, I, I haven't had any pork heart. I've had a lot of beef heart mm. and deer heart. And those taste similar to the muscle meat, depending on where the animal is grazing. Most of the meat I eat are the, all the meat I eat is grass fed and grass finished. If it's regeneratively raised ruminants like beef or if it's wild deer. And so, They taste similar. They have a different texture. And if you go through the organs, what you find is that though muscle meat is very nutritious and has a lot of things in it, iron, zinc, selenium somewhat, um, B6, B12, there's a lot of nutrients that are much better represented or uniquely represented in other organs. The heart specifically is richer in coenzyme Q10, richer in some of these non-essential amino acids that appear to have unique value in the human body, like anserine, taurine, things like this, even carnitine. Um, And then there are all kinds of other sort of peptides and signaling molecules that we've only begun to scratch the surface in our understanding of as scientists, researchers, physicians, these kind of things. And so this is what's quite fascinating. Within sort of the the health sphere now, there are a lot of people interested in peptides, things like BPC-157 or TA1, which is thymus and alpha-1. And you can tell by the name that thymus and alpha-1 comes from the thymus. And so what appears to happen is when you if you eat the organs raw or if you desiccate them, which is low-temperature dehydration, sort of freeze-drying, the peptides appear to be preserved so you can get signaling benefits. And that's what's so interesting is that we're getting both unique vitamins and minerals, B vitamins, things like riboflavin or folate. Riboflavin specifically is, is more uh, is more rich in heart or liver. It's a, thing, it's a vitamin, it's a B vitamin, B2 that a lot of people are deficient in. And then we're also getting unique peptides in every organ that the organ uses to kind of signal in the organ and outside of the organ that probably have unique benefits in humans. Tripe, the stomach of an, of an animal, especially the stomach of a cow, has BPC 157 in it. So it's fascinating to think about wow, we are probably getting nutritional benefits way beyond vitamins and minerals that we've never even thought about as humans, right? We've never even thought about this. We just think, at the very highest level, I think most people just think in terms of macronutrients. What are my carbs? what is my fat? What is my protein? Am I getting too many calories? Am I going to get fat? That's that's a good basic level to think about things, but it completely neglects a consideration of micronutrients. And micronutrients traditionally have been thought of as things like B vitamins, magnesium, potassium, selenium, manganese, vanadium, strontium, silica. But even beyond that, there's a whole deeper level in terms of signaling peptides. And this is not something that's new. It's been known for really the last 50 to 70 years. There were people doing experiments in the 1970s and 80s showing that you could give animals like rats, you could give them raw liver or desiccated liver and find unique benefits that were independent of the nutrients in that organ in that that organ so independent of the vitamins and minerals in liver, you could give this liver to rats and there was something in there. Jeff Bland did a bunch of experiments like this, and um, at our website at Hard and Soil, we have some of these quotes on there. People can read, but it's quite fascinating to see like wow, there's something special in there that we haven't done a good job of characterizing. It's probably peptides. These are short protein molecules or cofactors, and these signaling molecules. So we're just beginning to kind of understand this. So heart has unique peptides that are in heart. Liver has unique peptides. Spleen has unique peptides. In in spleen, you see something called Tuftsin and splenin and splenopentin. And in spleen, you have the same sort of experiments that have happened. Like raw or desiccated spleen has been shown to um, give sort of lab animals like more energy and just really help them in some unique way, even beyond the nutrients in there. So it's quite fascinating.
1: Woo. All right. And away we go. Deep into the Deep rabbit hole. Deep into the we rabbit just, hole. Just pulled it like that. Yeah. Pull the trap door. You, you were like, uh, you're like Frank from old school there when he's on the debate stage and he's like debating, uh, he's debating the guy and he's just like, what happened to Blacked Out? was like, that, that was amazing. <laughs> that was great. I have no idea what I just said. Um, So, you know, one fear that uh, people have is, wait, if I eat all of this organ meat, if I eat parts of this animal that seem icky, I'm going to get sick. What parts of an animal can actually make you sick?
0: There's no part of an animal that will make anyone sick if it's a fresh animal or it's prepared properly. Right. Or what can make people sick?
1: You know, Because it it seems that there's just a lot of fear around this new kind of diet. Or I could see people having fear in response to eating uh, parts of an animal that seem new or icky.
0: The the major misconception out there is that the liver, which is up here in the right upper quadrant of the body, kind of under the ribcage, um, it's not the place you want to get hit if you're in, you know, in the, in a cage or doing an MMA match, it certainly hurts like crazy, but it's a very incredible organ that houses the detoxification systems of the body. There are phase one and phase two detoxification systems, which is a series of enzymes and proteins that detoxify compounds. I think for this reason, there is a misconception that it stores toxins, but it doesn't do that. The liver is not full of all the lead and mercury and arsenic or glyphosate or BPA that you've ever eaten in your whole life. The liver actually takes those compounds and makes them water soluble and then attaches molecules to them, molecules like glutathione or glucuronide or other molecules, and prepares them for excretion in the poop or the pee. So the liver is this magical sort of hub of detoxification, which prepares these things to be excreted. That's the major misconception: is that the liver is a storage point. It's just our this like toxic waste dump, and over time it just gets more and more and more full of toxins. But that's not it at all. In fact, because it's such a metabolic powerhouse, it also controls ketosis, the formation of ketones. The liver controls our metabolism. It controls so many incredible things that it is so rich in unique nutrients. And you asked about the heart, but if I had to choose one organ. The liver is the first one I would think of that people should be getting in their diet that most of us are missing because of its uniquely rich content of things like folate, riboflavin, on and on and on. Selenium, manganese, zinc, so many nutrients in liver, choline, K2. And and most of that is because of these incredibly complex, elegant enzymatic transformations that it's making to allow us to live in a a world in which we do encounter toxins from time to time. Mm. I think historically we certainly would have been exposed to less toxins. So our livers are working overtime today in 2020, but we still would have been exposed to some toxins and, um, the liver is really good at getting rid of those and helping us deal with a lot of the the stressors we might encounter at a biochemical level. So, otherwise I think that most other organs people don't think of as toxic. I mean, I think a lot of people won't have ever seen a pancreas unless they were, in medical school and Dexter. In, yeah. Or in <laughs> surgery. And you know, a pancreas looks a little strange, which is why, um, very few people have eaten it. I think in indigenous cultures, they definitely eat these things. Kidneys look a little strange. They're, they're really beautiful when you think about these organs and what they can do. Um, but, um, they're strange to us and very familiar to indigenous cultures. This is one of the reasons that things like the desiccated organ supplements are, hopefully a very positive thing for people. It helps them get these organs in a way that's very biologically available without having the gross out factor. But can you think of any other organs people think of as gross or harmful? I mean, maybe brain, the brain. Yeah. So certainly I think that, that people fear CJD or Crutchfield-Jakob disease, these prion diseases from brain. But they're very rare and they don't really happen. There's never been a case in New Zealand or I don't think there's ever been a documented case in the United States. There were just some cases in Great Britain where they had to slaughter a lot of the herd. So in deer, for instance, there is a concern about this chronic wasting disease, which is a prion disease. And a lot of the deer that we hunt will get tested if it's an endemic area for chronic wasting disease. And certainly eating the brain or the spinal cord would put you at a higher risk of um, being exposed to that. We don't know if those prions can jump between deer or ruminants and humans. It, it happened in ruminants in the UK, but I think that uh, in in West Texas or wherever we're hunting deer in the US, there's concern that it would happen, but it, I don't think it's ever been documented uh, that anyone got a prion-based neurodegenerative disease from eating the neural tissue of an animal. And it, that's an interesting thing to think about. I've done some research and it appears that one of the reasons that those are, that chronic wasting disease is happening is because we as humans are disrupting the ecosystem and there's not enough natural predators and there's too many of these, the predators have been wiped out and then the deer are overpopulating. And that allows some of these things to, to flourish when they shouldn't in, in sort of um, evolutionary terms. So it's a quite interesting thing.
1: Yeah. Did you read uh, Chris Ryan's new book, civilized to death? Oh yeah. Right. So his book is kind of this cost benefit analysis of civilization itself. And some of the arguments that he makes, right. Are that, these diseases that we are seeing, we, our ancestors didn't have to deal with, right? Pre-agriculture, we didn't have a lot of the, uh, the chronic dis- diseases that we see now. And it seems to me like if there's one theme to modernity, it's that a lot of these answers um, around health and wellness are not about looking forward. They're about looking back whether you want to look at, uh, that new book, that's just been a juggernaut breath that came out about how breathing through our noses has this myriad of benefits. Um, whether you want to look at what you're doing, right. Just looking back at how our ancestors were living for hundreds of thousands of years to optimize our health moving forward. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the research that you did about, um, our ancestors and the way that they were eating. Any interesting stories that you came across while researching for your book?
0: Absolutely. So the book is called The Carnivore Code. And I completely agree with Chris's um, premise there as well. And it's something that I discuss in the book as well. The idea that if you look at the transition from hunter-gatherer type lifestyles or what we might consider to be a pre-agricultural type of interaction with the landscape to an agricultural type of landscape, there is there are myriad examples of pretty substantial marked decline in human health in many different facets. In the book, I specifically discuss an archaeological site at the Dixon Mounds in Ohio, which is a fascinating little spot. There were, I think, 13 or 14 burial mounds there that spanned a couple hundred years. And I believe it was from about 980 to maybe 1120 um, A.D., And what they found was that in that period, the Native Americans living there went from being hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists. And the evidence for the transition to agriculture is based on things like evidence of corn and actual plants they were cultivating and broken tools to farm and things like this. They were also able to date the burial mounds, I think based on carbon dating, but also based on how people were buried. The older burials had different structures and they had different groupings and the people were actually laid to rest or buried in the mounds in different positions. So they could see this real transition over the course of these burial mounds in that, in that 200 ish year period where this, this group of native Americans at the confluence of the spoon and Illinois rivers in Ohio, um, had, uh, had this transition and, and you see really striking differences in the skeleton, which indicate all sorts of new and worsening of, of chronic disease. You see in the skull and other um, trabecular bone, which is kind of like a meshwork bone. You see what's called um, a uh changes in the bone and the parodic hyperostosis, which is based on, It's believed to be due to nutrient deficiencies, iron deficiencies, many of the nutrient deficiencies. And you'll see more of these, many more of these lesions with the transition to agriculture. You also see more tuberculous lesions in the spine, uh, unhealed lesions in the long bones from tuberculosis, and shortening of the femur and humerus bone, suggesting decreasing height within a number, within just within generations. So very quickly. Cavities yeah. as
1: well. That was a mind blower for me is that in prehistory, cavities were largely absent and our jaw lines were perfect because uh, babies would chew for such a longer period of time they had more bone density in their jaw so you have these hunter-gatherers with these perfectly straight jaws which had enough room for their wisdom teeth to come through and they weren't eating sugars which were giving uh which now give us cavities i mean i think by the time i was 12 i had like five cavities it's just insane what we normalize growing up the the idea that times are the best Best right now that they could ever be is such a dangerous and prolific idea,
0: yeah, when Chris uh, talked about the narrative of perpetual progress in civilized to death, I thought isn 't that cool? I, I totally agree with him there. I think that this this certainly may not be though it is apostasy to suggest this. This is probably not the best time we 've ever had, and i don 't think humans are happier or leading better lives in two thousand and twenty than we have in the past and he does a great job of sort of debating those points in the book. And if you look at the health of humans today and the, and you compare the health of industrialized quote humans or uh, sort of civilized humans to indigenous people, the Hadza, the Ikung, the San, Amazonian tribes like the Kawimeno who are non-industrialized or not civilized, I think you would find some pretty stark differences in the quality of life, in the Chronic disease incidents, quality of their shit too. The well, Had, the Hadza they got some
1: those healthy microbiomes. Yeah, I've heard Poo Jeff talk about that. Yeah, you know Poo Jeff, uh,
0: Jeff or, Jeff Leach, Jeff Leach. Yeah. Poo Jeff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jeff Leach. Yeah, yeah. There's and there's been some interesting studies we can talk about. Justin Sonnenberg published a study in i believe it was science recently about the seasonal variation of the the hadza hunter gatherer microbiome but yeah i mean in so many ways what you see in these indigenous hunter gatherers and this has been noted over and over is squaring of the morbidity curve and the morbidity curve is just an xy axis that depicts As you age across the X-axis, what is your functionality on the Y-axis? And how much chronic disease, how much decrepitude do you incur as you age? And so you see this gradually declining line as you become more and more decrepit or less and less vital. And in hunter-gatherer tribes, that line is basically flat and then drops off very steeply in the last few weeks to months of your life. That's not how it works in 2020 in, quote, civilized society. We just decline gradually. You know, I have uh, a 70-year-old father who I love deeply who has been just gradually declining. I've seen it. And you look at people, you know, we have more and more people in their fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth decades who just get more and more hunched, more and more kyphotic, more and more spinal stenosis, more and more diabetic, more and more of everything, more and more autoimmune disease, less and less energetic, less and less vital, less and less, you know, less and less everything, less and less strong, less and more and more prone to injury. And it's, this is something that isn't really recapitulated. It's not really mirrored in hunter-gatherer societies but when you go to medical school they tell you as if it's canon blood pressure rises as you age it's expected you know chronic disease increases as people age it's diseases of aging which is really the most bullshit narrative i've ever heard because if you compare it to these uncivilized quote tribes you don't see any of this yeah you don't see any of this the
1: tara umara right they have in the book born to run they have 75 year olds that are running 100 miles right because no one in their culture told them that you can't
0: Exactly, exactly. And and in, in the Hadza culture and in other indigenous cultures, you have 75 year olds that are out hunting and, you know, cutting up animals and, you know, giving younger guys a run for their money in terms of, uh, you know, accuracy with arrows or, you know endurance while they're out seeking animals. Are you familiar with the work of Weston Price? No. Weston Price was a dentist in the 1930s who was way ahead of his time. He wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. So, you have the work of George Arma- Armalagos who did this work at the Dixon Mounds, these burial mounds in Illinois that I was or in Ohio that I was discussing earlier. And then it's it's the same kind of thing is mirrored in the work of Weston Price on a more contemporary basis. So in his book, you'll see that he traveled all around the world And he looked at indigenous people who were still around a little more 100 years ago or 90 years ago. And he looked at them at the intersection of Western culture. This was the time, a really interesting time in our history in which a lot of these groups were suddenly becoming absorbed into Western culture. But there were factions that stayed more indigenous or more traditional and factions that adopted our ways. They ate less animal foods, nose to tail. They had more processed sugar and processed flours and probably more processed vegetable oils as well. And this book's photographs are striking. They're exactly what you're describing. You see the most beautiful smiles in these people who had no dental care. No dental care, right? Dental care is as a farce. We don't need dental care to avoid cavities. We need fat-soluble vitamins and the absence of processed sugar and vegetable oils to avoid cavities. And what you see is these these people with huge wide jaws. I'm sure they had cavernous nasal pharyngeal sinuses right they breathe through their nose and they had these beautiful teeth with very very low incidence of cavities and he could compare them directly the same genetic lineage of people who were contemporaries with each other to people who had become absorbed or become more apart become more westernized and it was just it's a scary book to see the juxtaposition in these photos it absolutely goes to shit in, in a, a number of generations, or even people within the same generation, contemporary people. It's crazy to think how quickly this happens in people. And so there's no question that we've done something and gone wildly astray. And, you know, Jared Diamond's talked about this. He has an essay, you know, The Worst Mistake in Human History. I talk about this in my book. Chris talks about it in Civilized to Death. Like, the cult of the seed is his terminology for this transition of our ancestors across the globe toward more pastoralist lifestyles, toward more agrarianism. And with that comes pervasive increase in chronic illness. Well, in, infectious illness and decrepitude generally more can, more recently. We can see that over the last 100 years within our Western society in the U S we have a massive increase in chronic disease. And so we see the same sort of, um, really decline in human health mirrored again and again, Earlier, I was talking about Weston Price and this this real juxtaposition that he noticed between these indigenous people and their counterparts who were adopting Western sort of diets. And the the major difference here between these two people is is twofold. It's a decrease in the amount of animal foods eaten nose to tail. So it's a decrease in animal meat and organs. And it's a decrease and it's an increase in processed flours and processed vegetable oils in these people across the board. I think those two things combine in our population in 2020 to make us a really freaking weak, fragile group of people who are, you know, tragically afflicted widely by all sorts of issues. And so this is why I do what I do as a doctor. I went to medical school, but I was sort of a reluctant physician. You know, I went to medical school at the University of Arizona. Before that, I was a physician assistant in cardiology for four years. But before that, I was a ski bum for six years and I through hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and I climbed mountains and mountaineered in Jackson and Utah and and Oregon. And eventually I was just kind of came to the conclusion like, all right, I I don't want to do this my whole life. I I like science. I want to do biology, but I never want to lose this appreciation for wild spaces. And so I went to become a physician assistant looking at my dad who was a doctor and who had had his life consumed by medicine. I thought, I don't want to do that. I can never be that imbalanced. What I found very quickly as a physician assistant was a really disappointing medical model that was symptom-focused and pharmaceutical-based. So I went back to medical school with the intention of kind of doing medicine that was interested in understanding the cause of illness. Then I went to residency at the University of Washington, and here I am today a few years later. And it's really been my conclusion after all of that and all this research and all this thinking that those are the two things that are really driving modern the modern epidemic of chronic disease, this is the true pandemic, right? It is chronic disease. It is insulin resistance, AKA metabolic dysfunction. We can get into that. And that is driven by two main things. It is the, the dearth, the, the, just the loss of this ancestral knowledge that animals are the unique, uniquely best food for humans eaten nose to tail, that these organs are uniquely valuable. And we have substituted for those, the worst foods in human existence, processed vegetable oils, processed flowers, and processed sugars. And that leaves us, like I said, in a world of hurt um, as humans. It's a really tragic space, but Western medicine can't get its head out of its ass. And it's not for any lack of well-intentioned, intelligent physicians it's just that it's a, it's a titanic paradigm. It's a paradigm that is so slow to move or to change, and it's just a dinosaur now. It's an anachronism. Western medicine is an anachronism of itself in 2020. It's, just, it's 30 to 40 years behind the times, and it's making decisions and giving people recommendations that are based on science that is 30 to 40 years old and massively flawed and incredibly myopic. And so I think most health consumers understand this. But physicians are just really sadly limited by this flawed, you know, really ancient, quote-unquote, medieval paradigm that we are taught in medical school. That's just tragic to me. Uh,
1: So two years ago, I uh, co-created a comedy show with Chris called the Motherfucker Awards, um, which was a parody awards show where we celebrated corporations that fucked Mother Earth. And then we got comedians to go up and give these acceptance speeches— Um, on behalf of the corporations right and we had this really funny guy named brendan walsh who went up on behalf of tyson foods which is one of the largest uh industrial meat companies uh in the united states and his whole bit was on um the amount of shit that tyson was creating due to industrial agriculture. Um, it's a massive issue in a lot of states where you'll just have these cesspools of animal feces, um, and they will then just spray it on crops. People will get sick, um, and it's it's hugely polluting. So the United States has um, a problem with nuance, and some people might be hearing what you're saying and, and saying, well, okay, well, great. I'm going to head out to McDonald's right now and order a beef patty and be all good. Um, What do you have to say to those people? Um, And specifically talking about the environmental impacts of eating a meat-based diet.
0: One of the things I love about carnivore diets and animal-based diets that we're speaking about and that I wrote about that I think about all the time now is that it challenges so many of our long-held sort of dogmas. And it really forces us to think about things from this ancestral perspective. And so many things like this ethical consideration of animals fall out of that. And I love what you said earlier in the podcast. It's not so much that we need to look forward. It's that we need to look back. And if you look at the way that animals have moved and grazed and eaten evolutionarily, historically, it looks nothing like a clustered animal feeding operation or a factory farm. It looks nothing like that. That is an environmental catastrophe. The good news is that there are farmers out there who need to be heralded, who need our support, who are trying to farm in a way that recreates, that mirrors the natural grazing pattern of ruminant animals across the world. And this is what's so cool is you can really do it well. Earlier, I mentioned the word regenerative agriculture, but this is what I'm talking about. And people are probably familiar to, uh, with this terminology, grass-fed, grass-finished. And that's a great start in terms of raising ruminants, which are cattle and sheep primarily within the U.S., but buffalo, elk, antelope, pronghorn, these are all ruminant animals. And they've all been in this country and around the world for millions of years. Now, how do these animals graze in the wild? They they move frequently. They have a grazing ground and they eat the grass down to the ground, but don't destroy the grass. And... While they're doing that, they poop and pee, which actually fertilizes the ground and returns nutrients to the soil, enriching the soil, and the group moves. They graze. They go somewhere else and then they rotate. And in fact, they'll come back to the place they were grazing weeks, months later. And what's happened? The grass has grown. It's even thicker. They figured out this beautiful system where they can move around. Buffalo move, deer move, cows move. And this is what regenerative agriculture does. So there is an answer here.
1: But they're moving in tightly clumped groups um, away from predators, right? So instead of what you would see is a a bunch of cows just kind of splayed across a grassland, they would be more tightly clumped together, moving more quickly to when predators were around. That is how it impacted their grazing patterns.
0: And and based on the availability of grass in an area, they would eat the grass. And when it was done, they would move somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. And so this is what regenerative agriculture does. There are farms like white Oak or in Georgia or Belcampo in California that have multiple paddocks and they will move the cows every other day. And so what you get is both grass feeding and grass finishing of animals with them naturally fertilizing the land. You get some of the most rich soil I've ever seen in my life at these farms. And you get the, the earth being allowed to be impacted properly and then allowed to regenerate. And this is what, this is how ecosystems work. But, Just like humans made, I believe, a massive mistake, a huge colossal blunder when we stepped out of an ecosystem's pattern of living with the environment into an agrarian perspective. We are making the same mistake with farming. As hunter-gatherers, we are intimately linked. We are connected with an ecosystem. Hunter-gatherer societies, cultures realize that if they overhunt or overfish or overgather, They will destroy the ecosystem in which they exist. But for us as humans, once we step out of an ecosystem, once we say to ourselves, I am a human, I am the only thing on this planet, I am the best thing on this planet, I can do whatever I want to this ground, and we don't think 10 generations ahead, we basically screw ourselves. And this is what we've done with pastoralism, with agrarianism. Why do so many of these cultures collapse? Because they destroy the soil. This is what is believed, I think, to have happened to Mayan and Aztec cultures. They over-farmed the soil. And we're beginning to see that now. We've actually seen that for now 50 years in the United States. We've over-farmed the soil. What have we done? We've done monocrop agriculture with plants. And I'll get to the animal agriculture in a moment. But what we've done is we've grown plants, massive amounts of corn, soy, and wheat as monocrops. If you don't have animals in an ecosystem, you will destroy the land. And that means a depletion, a gradual but inevitable depletion of the land's nutrients into plants. You harvest the plants, you take them off, it gets less and less fertile, you get less and less of a yield, and then you have to start using synthetic fertilizers, which are not as good. We talked a little bit, we mentioned a little bit, the HOD's of microbiome in the gut. We'll come back to that too. But the soil has a microbiome. And the soil's microbiome is gonna mirror our human microbiome. And the soil's microbiome is just as important as our microbiome because the combination of bacteria and fungi in the soil is what allows things to grow. Whether or not we choose to make plants the majority of our diet, I think our ancestors did not. I think they favored animals. Something eats those plants. Animals eat those plants and we can eat the animals. The plants have to grow in fertile soil. And if we monocrop, if we take animals out of the equation, we are basically destroying ourselves 10 or 7 or 5 generations down the road. And our ancestors probably begin to realize this pretty quickly, but it might have been too late or... Then we see the decline in human health related to the decrease in nutrients. But you can imagine what was going on with the soils as well, becoming less and less fertile, forcing them to move. And you know, Jared Diamond, I think, believes that this is a lot of what drove conquest and the need for more and more land as humans. Because you have a population that starts farming, you outstrip the land in terms of your population. You get too big for the land. The land becomes less fertile. You can't produce enough food, which is low quality to begin with. And you have to go over there and kill those guys to get their land to farm it. It's not a sustainable model at all. But hunter-gatherer lifestyles were. I mean, most of these changes happened in the last 12,000 years of human evolution. We were, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens have been around for 350,000 to 500,000 years ago. It's hard for us to imagine this in 2020 because to me, today, three days feels like a long time. I can't imagine 500,000 years, much less 3.5 million years of hominid evolution in which we have been eating meat and organs as the centerpiece of our diet In this ecosystem space perspective, in a hunter-gatherer way, it's just a blink of an eye that we've decided, hey, I got a better idea. Let's start farming. And who knows why it happened. It might not have have even been a better idea, quote-unquote. There's lots of great ideas and great theories about this younger dry-ass meteor impact uh, you know, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson have talked about that there, this there's pretty good evidence that there was a mass megafaunal extinction about ten to 12,000 years ago, which may have forced us to do this, or who knows what happens or why we did it. But we had this transition, and it has been massively catastrophic. To your point, these animal feeding operations, these cluster feeding operations, are similar. There's no ecosystem there. It's like monocropping animals, right? Why would you want to monocrop plants? That's a horrible idea. Why would you want to mono- monocrop an animal? That destroys the earth. The problem that I see is that so often the animals themselves themselves get blamed for the the, the actions of humans. You know, it's not like, I mean, if you're growing a, a wheat plant, that, it's not the wheat plant's fault. It's the humans who tilled the soil and grew the monocrop farm and then sprayed it with glyphosate and then had to use synthetic fertilizer. A cow is not to blame for its position on a factory farm at a Tyson, you know, at a Tyson farm somewhere in the U.S. that's creating these huge cesspools of, of, of animal waste. It's not the cow's fault. Cows and ruminants like cows, bison, elk, antelope, pronghorn exist in ecosystems and have for millions of years harmoniously creating very fertile soil. And we just messed it up. Mm. We just said, hey, we can monocrop these cows and we're going to make cheaper cows. We're going to make cheaper meat that you can get all over the place. That's a horrible idea. Again, we're just making very short sighted decisions. But my God, I mean, I just think that as humans, I think Chris and I would agree on this. We just have really bad amnesia. We just don't know history. We're just so freaking short-sighted. We're making these horrible decisions about our health, about the way we raise animals, about where we get our food from, because we're just trying to get through tomorrow and we just can't wait for the next episode of Ozark or whatever the hell we're watching. And We're not even thinking about long-term health of us or the next generation.
1: Yeah. When you're tired and sick, it's very difficult to step back and look at the world through clear eyes. So my uh, main surf sponsor I've worked with for the last 12 years, Patagonia, got into food a couple of years ago uh, so Patagonia Provisions is now a big department in their company and they sell bison um, and they actually took a lot of flack for selling meat because Patagonia is seen as an environmentalist company. Um, about as good as you can get for a billion dollar company, the amount of money that they put into land restoration, environmental causes. And they took a lot of flack for um, selling meat. Um, You know, a lot of us have seen the movie Cowspiracy. A lot of people think that going vegan is the best way to go if you want to minimize your impact on the environment. Um, If you were in a room with the guys who made Cowspiracy what would you say to them um, about the points that they missed in that
0: documentary? So that documentary is myopically focused on this monocropping of animals that we talked about. There would be multiple points to consider with them. The first would be that monocropping plants is no better and will equally destroy us. So if we're going to get rid of all animals, we've got a pretty dark future because monocropping of plants is a Pretty big shit show, too.
1: Because you displace the entire animal ecosystem. You displace
0: de- the entire animal ecosystem, and you're destroying the soil in just the same way. There's no better. So if you think you've got a solution just by getting rid of all the cows on the planet, that's a complete fallacy. You're diluted. The answer is ecosystem space, you know, farming of both plants and animals together. And you know, my book, The Carnivore Code, also has a whole section which we can get into about spectrum of plant toxicity. And I really believe, like I said, and I hinted at earlier, that animal foods eaten nose to tail are the primary food for humans, and that we should not incorrectly um, venerate plant foods for their nutrients because they definitely have toxins. So we'll just put that aside for a moment for a future discussion on this podcast. But I think that the main thing that they're missing in these documentaries is there are ways to raise animals that are evolutionarily consistent that actually improve the quote health of the planet. This has been proven over and over and over. If you go to White Oak pastures or Belcampo in California, you see green grass, you see healthy cows, and if you look at the soil, if you stick your hand in the dirt or you compare the soil there to the soil on a monocrop farm, and this has been done. I mean, Will Harris owns White Oak and he has a soil sample in one of his offices from his farm and a soil sample from his neighbor's farm 25 yards away across a fence line. And they look like completely different types of uh, soil. One is very light brown, like lighter than a cardboard box. And one is like burnt coffee grounds. And the burnt coffee grounds is Will's soil because it's so rich and dense. You've been in like, you know, old growth forests. Maybe oh, yeah, I grew up in Santa Cruz. Right? We've got the redwoods, carnivorous forests out right. there. Mountain biking or... You know what good dirt looks like. It's dark. It's like coffee grounds. There's a smell to it. There's a smell. It's like a humus, right? And you've also been in places. I don't know if you've ever been to like West Texas where the soil has been just monocropped to crap and it's a lighter soil. They've destroyed it. They, all the nutrients are out of it, but you can take the soil that looks like coffee grounds and make it into cardboard box soil by monocropping multiple generations of plants or animals on it and not having an ecosystem space perspective. Mm. So look, I don't know any of the guys who made Cowspiracy. I want to believe they were well-intentioned. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in the plant-based movement are motivated mostly by massive profits in making people eat more synthetic food. But let's just assume that people are well-intentioned. They're not completely educated. They're missing the point. It's not that animals are destroying the earth. It's that we're raising them in the wrong way. And there are places that are doing it in the right way and that are clearly providing... Crystal clear examples of how it affects the planet in a positive way. In 1850, there were 250 million ruminants in North America bison, elk, antelope, pronghorn, deer, etc. They weren't destroying the soil, they were creating some of the most fertile soil on the earth. We messed it up. We messed it up by believing that we could do it in a certain way that would improve the profit line of a multinational corporation. If you actually think about the greenhouse gas, there's a whole chapter in the Carnivore Code about this. That's also a really uh, myopic view on it a lot of people who cite the fact that ruminant animals are quote destroying the environment are basing that assumption or that statement on a two thousand six or two thousand nine FAO study which was very poorly done and subsequently rescinded because the data was so badly considered that study tried to compare quote tailpipe emissions from cow from cars the carbon dioxide equivalents of what comes out of a car to a life cycle analysis of the greenhouse gas emissions of a cow or a ruminant animal. And we all know that cows burp methane, which can have a carbon dioxide equivalent. And you can try and compare apples to apples in terms of greenhouse gases. Incidentally, vegans also burp and fart methane <laughs> as do most humans. Um, but what you, what the the problem in that study is that they were comparing a life cycle Of carbon dioxide equivalents to an animal, not just what was coming out of an animal's tailpipe, but how many carbon dioxide equivalents were used in the whole production of that cow, getting them to market, moving them around the farm, all these kinds of things. And they were comparing it to what's coming out of the tailpipe of a car. No one's ever done a life cycle analysis in terms of carbon dioxide equivalents of a car or transportation. I think these industries don't want it done. They don't want it done because it would be damning. But in my book, there's a 2016 um, set of data from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, looking at U.S.-based greenhouse gas emissions. If you compare tailpipe to tailpipe, meaning if you compare carbon dioxide equivalent emissions from what comes out of a cow's mouth and butt, mostly it's burps, to what comes out of the tailpipes of cars driven in the United States, it's not even close. Cows produce 1.9% of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon dioxide equivalents. Transportation, 26.7%. Electricity generation, 33.3. Who is the real polluter here? You don't hear that in cowspiracy, right? And that's all cows in the United States. That's even the factory farm cows. We're not even talking about regenerative agriculture cows. If you look at the cows that are raised regeneratively on these grass-fed, grass-finished farms, you find that they actually are carbon negative. They sequester more carbon into the soil, which is why the soil looks like coffee grounds. Dark soil is organic matter in the soil. Organic matter is made of carbon. Carbon is coming from the environment and being moved into the soil. Animal raised properly in regenerative systems in an ecosystem-based perspective like millions of ruminants have throughout the world for millions of years sequester carbon in the soil. They don't make more carbon Mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. They sequester carbon. What is the real problem here? It's new carbon being generated by the burning of fossil fuels, which liberates carbon that was already kind of sequestered. Carbon from petroleum was in the earth. It was never going to get into the atmosphere. And you burn it, and now you've put new carbon in the atmosphere. It's a completely different equation.
1: I had a representative from the Good Food Institute on this podcast, and what his organization does is works with companies like Tyson to try and get them to adopt um alternatives such as cell-based meats so cell-based meats are um, a way to grow it's lab grown right? so you grow uh, let's say a ham in a laboratory and the the argument that he has is that it really cuts down on transportation on the environmental impacts and you could mass produce this stuff you're shaking your head i want to hear the rebuttal
0: it's a horrible idea why It's a horrible idea Do we think we're really going to be able to outsmart nature? Are you really going to be able to grow something in a lab that's going to have proper human nutrition? And these labs are definitely going to have carbon emissions. They're going to be carbon positive. It doesn't recreate an ecosystem. This isn't the answer in any way, shape, or form. This is just somebody else's harebrained scheme to make more money. It's a horrible idea. That's just, that's like a dystopian reality when you're eating. <laughs> if you're eating cell-based meat, we have really effed things up pretty badly. It's a horrible idea. And it's also not going to improve the quality of the soil. What we need, the single greatest metric that will determine our persistence as humans on this planet, is soil carbon. Soil carbon. And the only way to get more soil carbon is to raise animals properly on the land. The question isn't, can we do it or can we scale it? The question is, will the consumer appreciate the value proposition and pay a little more for it? The problem is that as Americans, we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been sold a false narrative that you can have all the food you want for as cheap as you can get it. It's just a false narrative. You have to pay for things that are valuable for you. The value proposition is if you want to be healthy, if you want your family to be healthy, you have to work for it. And you have to pay a little more for it. And our ancestors paid a little more for it because they hunted and gathered it. And we have been told you can have it all. You can sit in front of your TV and watch Game of Thrones or Netflix, or whatever the hell you want, and you can just go to the grocery store and get whatever food you want. It's going to be really cheap. It's going to be cheaper every year. The government's going to subsidize your corn and soy, and you'll still be able to live a good life, mm. except you won't. We are, and we talked about this earlier on the podcast. We are slowly becoming just an a, an abysmally fragile, miserable, chronically diseased society, and we don't even see this we don't even see this inexorable march to decrepitude. We don't even see this just tragic, slippery slide that we are going on. Cell-based meat is a horrible <laughs> idea. It's a horrible <laughs> idea. It doesn't even it doesn't collect, It's not going to correct an ecosystem's at all. It's not going to give humans the nutrition they need. And I mean, this is kind of what all these plant-based meats are trying to do. And it's all based on the false premise that animals are the problem. Right. Animals aren't the problem. The problem is the narrative we've been sold. Mm-hmm. The problem is the narrative. And people are probably listening to this and thinking, well, you can't scale grass-fed, grass-finished. You absolutely frickin' can. Hmm. Every single cow, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't speak in the total superlatives, but 99% of the cows that we eat that are grain-finished in these factory farms spend 85% of their life on grass. The only reason Tyson or one of the megalithic food du jour brings them to a clustered animal feeding operation or a factory farm is to fatten them up to make more money. Right. There's plenty of land and cows and then there's a massive amount of acreage, which you're probably familiar with. I don't know if Patagonians ever talked about this, called in the Conservation Reserve Program. Are you familiar with that? No, tell me about it. The Conservation Reserve Program is, a, is, is the U.S. government giving farmers <clears throat> millions of dollars a year to allow land that has been monocropped to shit to remain fallow. They, let it, they don't put anything on it. So basically it's the government paying farmers to not do anything with their land because they have monocropped it into oblivion. How can you rehabilitate land? What is the best way to rehabilitate destroyed land? It is to put animals back on it. It is to put animals back on it. It is to create an ecosystem. And that is really science. That is not opinion or conjecture. Once we appreciate that, people's ideas will change. But that is just a truth that has been hidden. Mm. And that is a truth that has been masked underneath a mountain of lies and a mountain of propaganda that animals are the problem. They are not the problem. It is our human narrative that is a problem. Do you talk at all about
1: population? You know, in the last 50 years, the population of humans on Earth has doubled. Uh, one of the arguments that a company like Monsanto makes is we've got a lot of people to feed, and we need to farm in this way to keep everyone fed. What's your response to that?
0: You ever read Ishmael by No. Daniel Quinn? Yeah. So that's a very interesting circular sort of set of reasoning. Um, what happens if we feed everyone this way? This is the, goes back to Jared Diamond. What happens if you take a population of hunter-gatherers and you break an ecosystem's perspective? And you give them way more grain than they can handle. They reproduce and they overpopulate. And this is the slope that we've been on. This is the domino that that started you know, 10,000 years ago, and here we are in 2020 with a population that is rapidly growing. There is no end to this if we continue to treat the problem in the same way. Monsanto is going to spray a hell of a lot of glyphosate and all that food. We're going to get a chronically sick population. But what's amazing about humans is even when most of us are chronically sick, we can limp to our 20th birthday in time to reproduce and put another generation on the earth and grow our numbers, but we're not going to be thriving for the next 40 to 60 years that we're stuck on the earth, kind of just hobbling around. It's a pretty, it's a pretty tragic, uh, you know, sort of misadventure that we're all on now that you reproduce at between 18 and 30 years of age, but you have so much life left and really chronic disease starts once you've reproduced. So I wish it would imagine what would happen if we all reproduced at age 50, how many people wouldn't get to age 50 with chronic disease or wouldn't have fertility at age 50. So there's a real difference in terms of what's going on here.
1: That's funny. It could be like a, this, you must be this tall to go on this ride. And like, you must be this old to reproduce.
0: Right. I mean, that would change the the healthy ones. You must be this healthy to reproduce. If you're not healthy at the, at your 35th birthday, you can't reproduce because you are, you are really on the wrong path and there's no, there's nothing like that. And that would be considered a eugenic type of (laughs) philosophy, but, but the idea is clear. And so this is a really slippery sort of philosophy from Monsanto because What's going to happen if we keep feeding our population with an unsustainable model is the population will just keep growing and growing and growing. And then we're terraforming Mars. And it's like, wait a minute, we just need to take a breath and think this whole equation is flawed. You can't do this. Our population on the earth should not be expanding at this rate. This is a horrible idea. Just because our population is expanding doesn't mean that we have to farm in this horrible way to keep feeding them all. It should be a wake up call like, holy shit, our population is exploding What are we going to do about that? Let's just get everybody healthy first. And if you can't feed everyone on the planet healthy food that is grown responsibly, that is not sprayed with Bayer's Monsanto glyphosate, if that's not an alarm bell, I don't know what is. Hmm. How are we so narcotized that we don't see that?
1: Do you know of any good incentive programs that are happening in the government right now that help regenerative farming? Um, because I know there are so many subsidies that go towards things like monocrop for, uh, corn. Is there any are there any programs in the works right now or are there is there are there any ideas that you have that would incentivize this kind of good farming that not only makes people healthy, but also makes the land healthy?
0: Well, I think there are these, there's a top down approach and there's a bottom up approach. The top down approach is trusting the government to make the right decision, which is something that I think very few of us do in 2020. But if we could imagine that that might happen, I think farm subsidies would be the answer. And it would, it would start with the removal of subsidies for corn and soy, because why are we farming those things? These are not healthy foods for humans, and we can get into why. But you know, historically, we've seen this: the farming of maize, the farming of corn, is what was one of the major contributors, most likely, to this this massive increase in chronic disease in these populations in you know uh, at the Dixon Mounds in Ohio. The nutrients in animal foods are highly superior to the nutrients in plant foods, especially when we're eating the nose to tail, and so incentivizing the right types of farming and removing the farming, removing the subsidies for corn and soy would be a fantastic step. There's nothing in the place for that now. And I think people look at meat and they think it's so expensive. It's so expensive. Well, the reason it's so expensive is because it's real food and it's real food made by people who are working very hard to do it in conditions that are actually consistent with what we would have had or the most consistent with what we would have experienced or the way we would have hunted food or, or obtained food in, you know, generations and generations ago. The other piece of that equation is that the processed food is, is incorrectly deflated in terms of cost because of these fake subsidies. And so you remove the subsidies and things start to even out. And then why don't you subsidize food that's actually healthy? And then, then we get into all of these sort of political ideas about why don't we actually understand that animal foods are the most nutritious foods on the planet for us? We're at, we're, at a, we're at the beginnings of a crisis here, my man. Because there are a lot of people out there who still believe that red meat and saturated fat are bad for you. And don't understand this evolutionary, this nutritional, this biochemical argument that I'm trying to make, that these are the foods that made us human. These are the most nutritional foods on the planet. Data that says otherwise is invariably epidemiology. It's observational research, which has been refuted in interventional studies. But we are only ever told about the uh, the cherry-picked observational epidemiology suggesting that animal meat might be associated with bad conditions. And we can dig into that in a second as well, because it's a really important point. But I think we have a crisis of awareness at this point. We don't even understand what food is good for us. Why would our government stop subsidizing corn and soy if we're being told that a plant-based diet is the way that we're going to get better as humans? I mean, all of the political gusto right now is behind fake meat. Because animals are both destroying the environment, which we know to be a lie, and they're hurting us as humans, which we know to be an even greater lie. And so we have a massive amount of work to do. So I don't have a lot of faith or confidence in the fact that that change is going to come from a higher level.
1: A lot of people will go uh, vegetarian or vegan and see a lot of great health benefits in the short term. And then there will be this drop-off point. Why, why does that occur? Um what what happens to your body, to most people's bodies um when adopting a vegan diet long term?
0: Well there's two important points there to, to point out. I want to talk about the first um the, the first observation, um and then I'll get to the second one. I talk about that in my book actually. There's a section I ask why do vegan diets work for some people? Because there are now thousands of anecdotes of people improving autoimmune disease. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, depression, anxiety, with carnivore diet, with an animal-based diet. Similarly, there are many anecdotes of people improving similar conditions, at least temporarily, with plant-based diets. And so there are a couple of things going on here that are always missed by the media. Nuance is hard to communicate. We are, yeah, especially we are, in America. Yes, we are very bad at nuance. Yeah. tell me what to do, black and white, <laughs> tell me what to eat, da-da-da-da. All right, so a lot of people who go plant-based came from a standard American diet. They came from an absolute junk food diet, okay? Crap in a bag. Now, it's not surprising if you go from an absolute junk food standard American diet, which is perhaps the worst diet anyone could eat, full of processed vegetable oils, processed flours, and processed sugars, to eating less processed plants that you're going to feel better at least temporarily, okay? Does that mean that the meat was the problem? No. That's a complete error of judgment. There were a million other things that you took out as well. The other nuance here is that some people get better because there are those in the population that have immunologic sensitivity to milk or eggs. Evolutionarily, we would not have had a lot of dairy or eggs. Hmm. Eggs are seasonal. Dairy is very seasonal and very rare. And there are proteins in dairy, casein and whey specifically, that can be immunologically triggering for people. Just like there are proteins in wheat, wheat germagglutinin, gliadin, gluten, That can be immunologically triggering for people with celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There are proteins in egg whites as well. The albumin in egg whites can be immunologically challenging. So when someone goes plant-based, quote, and they cut out eggs and dairy and meat and maybe processed food, they'll then turn around and say, see, animal foods are bad for me. Well, was it the processed food? Was it the dairy? Was it the eggs? Or was it the actual meat? And I've never heard a story, if there's one out there, I would love to hear this, of someone doing a plant-based diet and reincorporating well-raised meat or organs in their diet and feeling worse or having a recurrence of their autoimmune issue. Because it's a very interesting point. And I created the juxtaposition at the beginning of this because how can both be true? How can people improve autoimmune disease, inflammatory illness, diabetes, heart disease, depression, anxiety, psychiatric illness with a plant-based diet and an animal-based diet if animal meat and organs are the real problem? There's got to be more nuance there. This is our oversight of judgment and this is really a uh, it's really something that isn't mirroring what happens with epidemiology as well. Correlation is not causation. Epidemiology is a type of study that is observational. It is a survey-based type of study. There is no experiment. You cannot draw a causative inference from an observational study which only is equipped to create a correlation. From which a hypothesis can be drawn, which must be tested with an interventional study. So, epidemiology studies, which are the studies people base their transition to plant based diets for health reasons on, are studies in which surveys are given to people and they say, What have you eaten for the last 10 years and how healthy are you today? Or, Tell us what you're going to eat, you know, tell us how you eat now, let's follow you for 10 years and tell us how you're eating over the next 10 years and then how healthy are you then. At first glance, it sounds like, okay, that sounds reasonable, but then you realize, wait a minute, there are a million variables there, and a lot of those variables can be associated. For instance, how many people do you know, maybe outside of your normal health sphere, how many normal Americans do you know, do you think there are, who go to a barbecue and only eat meat? Hmm. They don't eat coleslaw or potato salad or ketchup or mayonnaise with vegetable oil or cake or soda, how do you go to McDonald's and just order a burger patty without special sauce and a Coke and fries cooked in canola oil or peanut oil? None, none. (laughs) So, but that's essentially what that's the error of judgment that is being made in these epidemiology studies. People are saying, Oh look, this guy eats more meat, but that meat was probably eaten with a bunch of other stuff that could have also be causing the problem. So you can look at that association, association in the study and say, let's make a hypothesis that meat causes X, Y, Z, diabetes, heart disease, inflammation. That's a hypothesis. Then you go as a good scientist and do an interventional study where you take people who are eating a certain diet and you have a control group that doesn't change their diet. And you take another group of people and you say, Hey, why don't you remove some of the carbohydrates from your diet and include eight ounces of lean meat in your diet? And we're going to follow you for eight to 12 weeks and see what your inflammatory markers do. Well, that study has been done. It's been done repeatedly and it's been published and it doesn't do anything but lower the inflammation. When you increase red meat, there is not a single interventional study with animal meat or organs that show that these things are harmful or inflammatory to humans in any way, shape or form. And furthermore, if you look at epidemiology, if you look at these observational studies in the Western world, in the U S they often do show an association quote between the consumption of red meat and worse health outcomes. This is probably because we've been told that red meat is bad for us for 70 years. So who eats red meat? People who give the middle finger to everything healthy. (laughs) People who ride motorcycles and smoke cigarettes and don't get colonoscopies or mammograms. They don't play tennis on Sundays. (laughs) They get less sun. They're of a lower socioeconomic status and they don't see their doctor very much. If you go to Asian countries, what's the narrative there? Red meat is affluence. Epidemiology looks completely differently there. It's the twilight zone. It's a mirrored universe. In Asia, there are studies, there are epidemiology studies with over 200,000 people that show the men who eat the most red meat have the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease. Lowest. The women who eat the most red meat have the least rates of cancer. What is red meat good for Asians and bad for Americans? No. Epidemiology tells us about the narrative, it's a correlation which must be tested. So, so many of the decisions we are making today are based on faulty science, whether it's at an environmental level or at a health level. And when you go and you do the interventional studies, it tells a different story. And why is that surprising when humans have been eating red meat and organs at the center of their diet for three and a half million years? These foods made us human. We're just so misled in 2020 because we can't see the forest for the trees. Mm. Do you eat fish? So fish, we, we just take a step back, yep. right? Think about plants and animals. So as we were talking about this before the podcast. I was talking with Steve Rinelli yesterday. We did a podcast and I was telling him about my ideas around animal foods and plant foods and their relative nutritional value. And he said, you know what, Paul, that's right. I can go out somewhere with my boys and any animal I see that runs away from us is edible. It's going to be nutritious. And I look at a vast forest or wilderness and almost every single plant I see is going to kill us dead. We celebrate it when we find a plant that won't kill you on the spot <laughs> yeah. or cause you massive nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, right? But every single animal is edible and is nutritious for humans. So there's a real dichotomy. There's a real juxtaposition here between the relative nutritional value of meat and organs and plant foods. And that's what the carnivore diet, that's what animal-based diets, that's what my book and my whole mission is about. Within the realm of animal foods, I think fish are not toxic for humans, but in 2020, we have polluted the ocean so badly that we have to put a- ca- a caveat there. we have to put an asterisk and say, "Well, how clean is the fish you're eating and personally i've chosen not to eat much fish because most of it is pretty darn dirty, especially the big ones. Well, the big ones are the ones from freshwater lakes. I mean you're not going to get me to eat a fish out of the lake Michigan you know uh, you're not going to get me to eat a fish you know from most freshwater streams or lakes in the United States right now because we 're so freaking polluted mm. what's the runoff there's no way I'm eating a fish out of Lake Austin. In, in Texas or like Travis, like there's no way I'm going to eat a fish out of there. It's going to bioaccumulate. Sadly, I will say that I think of fish as even if you're eating fish, that's wild. It's like eating a cow that's grazing in Tokyo or Beijing. Do you really want a cow that's in inhaling the worst air in the world all the time or Wuhan or wherever, you know, and it's not even because of coronavirus. It's because that area of China or Japan has really, really polluted air. We've made the oceans into a really polluted milieu. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff in there that's no good. And the bigger the fish gets, the worse it gets. So forget eating tuna or swordfish or halibut. That's a horrible idea. It's super enjoyable and meaningful to be out in the wilderness fishing those things. And I think our ancestors were certainly nourished by them. But if everything else we've talked about is a little bit dystopian and scary, let's, let's just admit the fact that those foods are not so great for us anymore. And to make your diet mostly based on fish is very dangerous today. You know, Tony Robbins was a pescatarian. He was frankly metal toxic. You cannot be a pescatarian in 2020 and expect to be healthy. If you check your heavy metals, you will, your jaw will drop.
1: Right. He got really sick from he that, got really, right? Really sick. Yeah. He was eating tuna all the time.
0: Well, even tuna, even salmon. I mean, if you eat salmon all the time, you could get too much organic mercury in your diet. And especially if you combine it with bigger fish, halibut or sea bass or anything like that.
1: I subscribe to a service in Santa Cruz uh, that's called Real Good Fish. And what they do is they work with a number of fishermen in the Bay Area and um, who will come up with bycatch that doesn't normally have market value to it because a lot of stores, they really only like four fish, right? Because that's what's been marketed to the consumer. So what real good fish does is they will, um, do these drop-off zones with fish that taste great. Like, uh, Pacific Grenadier, for example, it's a small fish, but it doesn't look, it doesn't look very tasty. And, um, you get the subscription service to essentially diversify the amount of the the types of fish that we can consume. So I, I do a, a pickup once a week with uh, those guys that works pretty well. Um, when it comes to vegetables, do you eat any vegetables?
0: Negative Ghost Rider.
1: Negative Ghost Rider. You're crazy, man. I love my, my beets. I love my kale salads. You're missing out, man. It tastes good. Just drizzle a little lemon, a little pepper on there. I'm going to show you a whole new world. Come with me.
0: Wait, wait, why do you have to put lemon and pepper on doesn't it? Doesn't taste good by itself?
1: <laughs> Guess yeah, what, man?
0: Damn it. You, you've checkmated me. <laughs> kale doesn't love you back. Let's talk about kale. So if you think about plants, let's just go, in, let's just go into the realm of plants. Like, you know, imagine, imagine the perspective of plants. A plant is rooted in the ground. Animals can run away from you. They have a defense mechanism called mobility or teeth or antlers or hooves. They can get away from you pretty good. You know, a fish can swim away, an eagle can fly away, nobody should be hunting eagles, but it just came to my mind. You know, a buffalo can run away or trample you. I mean heck, a buffalo is just gonna like look at you and stare you down. Plants are stuck in the ground. They're pretty vulnerable. Imagine I bury you in the sand and I paint your face like a soccer ball. (laughs) And a whole bunch of irascible six-year-olds roll up out of a bus from soccer practice and they don't have a ball. You're going to feel pretty freaking vulnerable. they could kick you in the head. That's how a plant feels, man. 450 million years of co-evolution between plants and animals has led to a total, a consistent, a perpetual arms race. Animals try and eat plants. Animals that are herbivorous try and eat plants. Plants create toxins. Animals develop ways to detoxify them. Plants create more toxins plants that don't create more toxins get extinct because they get overeaten by animals that are trying to eat them all the time because animals are mobile and plants are stuck in the ground. You ever seen that scene in Willy Wonka where they go in the room and everything's made out of candy. It's the whole movie. That's <laughs> not the reality, right? You look outside of this Airbnb we're sitting in in Manhattan, Montana. Everything's not made out of metaphorical candy, right? You can't just walk outside and start eating plants. You're going to get sick. I mean, by the time you're on your third or fourth plant, you're going to be running to the bathroom and you're going to puke or vomit or worse. We're going to take you to the ER, right? Plants are freaking toxic. There are a small number of plants that we figured out won't kill you on the spot, but it's not a question of if plants have toxins. It's a question of how good you or I or the listener is at detoxifying them. Hmm. Plants are full of toxins. Animals don't have things like this. Animals don't have any biochemical defense mechanisms in their liver, their meat, or anything like that. Just like we don't as humans. Our defense mechanisms are big brain. Animals' defense mechanisms we talked about before. So plant defense mechanisms have been a part of human life for millions of years, but the thesis that I would like to advance is humans became human because we were eating meat. This is not really that questionable anymore. There are unique nutrients in meat that are not found in plants. And the growth of the human brain occurred about 2 million years ago, right when we started seeing the advent of hunting tools and hunting mass graves and hunting cut marks on bones and injuries to animals in the fossil record. Hunting made us human. There's good evidence from Neanderthals and Homo sapiens in Northern Europe forty to 50,000 years ago and even much older fossilized remains of the teeth that humans have been eating a lot of meat. In fact, the majority of our protein came from meat for... The entirety of hominid evolution, and it makes sense because what do we need to grow a big brain? Creatine, carnitine, choline, B12, K2, EPA, DHA, every single one of those nutrients is found in animal foods and not in plant foods. You don't grow a big brain with plant foods. And in fact, there are population surveys done at Oxford correlating the level of B12 in someone's blood with the size of their brain. Who eats more B twelve? People that eat animals. Who eats less B twelve? Vegetarians and vegans. You got a smaller brain. Your brain shrinks. I'm serious, man. The human brain has actually been shrinking for the last thirty thousand years, coincident with our gradual shift toward more plant based agriculture. These are these are really not that controversial anymore. Like our brain was biggest thirty thousand years ago. We have a smaller brain now than we did.
1: How does cooking plants? This is going to be a two part question. First, cooking plants affect the nutrients or toxicity? And how does cooking animals affect the nutrients in it? Um, because I wouldn't eat a raw beet, but I like to saute it up and it tastes great. Um, does that is that just making it easier for me to digest or is there is it impacting the nutrients in any way? That's the first question. And then secondly,
0: sauteing up a, a beef patty. Right. So... If you think about the number of ways that humans have devised to detoxify plants, you understand how toxic they really are. Cooking, sprouting, pressure cooking in modern times, fermenting is the oldest way that we've detoxified plants. It gives you some sense of the relative value of plants and animals in the human diet, right? You can eat an animal raw. There's a lot of cultures that eat raw meat, raw organs, totally fine. You can't really eat a lot of plants raw, but if you cook them, sometimes you can get them to the point that they won't kill you on the spot or they're a little bit less toxic, Fermentation actually degrades some of the anti-nutrients and toxins in plants. But at the same time, the more you cook plants, the less available some of the nutrients are sometimes. Really, I think that evolutionarily, and this is the case I make in the book and with a lot of my work, plants are survival food. They're fallback food. And so I went hiking up Psychiatry Peak yesterday. I saw zero plants that I could have eaten. Zero plants. There were no nutritive plants That I could have eaten on that hike. And there were lots of animals. I saw a big doe. There were lots of things I could have eaten. So the relative abundance of animals versus plant foods that are actually going to give humans nutrient value is, is clear. And then, you know, there's a real juxtaposition there again. And then furthermore, you think about the nutrients in the plants and the animals, and then you get to the number of, like, if you're going to eat a plant, you're probably freaking starving a lot of the time. Now that's when we're talking about stems, roots, leaves, and seeds. The fruit of the animal, the fruit of the plant is different. Every once in a while, plants do something crazy where they put their seeds, which are their plant babies, the parts of the plant that are trying to get the next generation in, inside of a sweet thing. They're trying to encourage animals to eat it. And that's in great contradistinction to what they're trying to do with the rest of the animal. They're saying, oh, now you can eat me. You know, now eat this fruit. Don't eat too many of the seeds. I'm going to make the seeds pretty toxic. I want you to have some of the seeds that go out in your poop and then they make a fertile plant somewhere else. That's how plants spread their seeds sometimes. But generally speaking, plants are not encouraging us to eat their leaves and roots and stems or seeds. And if we look at the way that indigenous cultures do this, a lot of times they are going to have to do something to detoxify these, whether it's cooking. A lot of times it's fermenting. That's where fermentation come from, came from probably to saying, Hey, let's just have some backup food in case we don't get an animal. Let's start fermenting some stuff. It doesn't taste that good, but it'll be a little bit less toxic for us. Hmm. So the relative values of these foods is clear. And the fact that plants have toxins is clear. And the message that I hope to put forward with the book and with my work is understand number one, that animal foods eaten nose to tail organs and meat from always animals are the most nutritious foods on the planet. And to ignore them is to become a suboptimal human. And they've been incorrectly vilified for 70 years. Number two, plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. There are more and less toxic parts of plants. And if we ignore that, we are living a suboptimal life. And some people are kicking ass even with plants in their diet. Maybe you're crushing it right now even with kale and beets, okay? But what I really want people to know is that if you're not crushing it, if you have issues with body composition or sleep or depression or libido or mood or mental clarity or brain fog, this is a new tool to think, wait a minute, there's another nuance here. There's another layer of the onion. That layer of the onion is a plant toxicity spectrum saying, these are more toxic. I,
1: I don't like that analogy. I think it's like the layer of the cow, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> the layer of the bison. <laughs>
0: right, You got to peel back the bison. You got to peel back it. the bison hide yeah. to get to the deeper layer of, of, the, of, of the, the, the heart. Yeah, yeah. Get to the organs. Yeah. Yeah. We're going a little deeper or we're deeper in the soil. We're going deeper <laughs> in the soil instead of the deeper of the onion. But you guys get what I'm saying that there are these, there are, there is a plant spectrum of toxicity. And if you're not thriving, making animal meat and organs the centerpiece of your diet with eliminating the most toxic plants is incredibly powerful for people. Okay, Certainly there are people like me who eat no plants and have decided, Hey, I don't even need plants in my diet. Um, but you don't have to go that far. And I want people to understand that this isn't dogmatic. I'm trying to create this health paradigm. That's a little bit of a different interpretation of sort of these paleolithic ancestral ideas of what are the ideal foods for humans. So i want to answer your questions because I got off on a little tangent there. And that was, does cooking detoxify plants? Does it change the nutrients? It will detoxify some things, but not all. So a lot of things are not detoxified by cooking or sprouting. A lot of things are not even detoxified by pressure cooking. Some things are improved by fermentation, but not much. And you kind of have to ask yourself, like, why am I doing this in the first place? Am I doing it because I like it, because it's interesting? Sure, that's valid. But know how it's affecting you personally, because in the book I talk specifically about beets. They're very high in oxalates, which is a dicarboxylic acid that is known to accumulate in human tissues. There's a lot of people in autopsies that have oxalic acid, oxalate deposits in their thyroid and breast tissue and other tissues of their body. Oxalic acid doesn't have any biochemical role in these tissues. It appears to be just a waste product that our body's kind of storing away there. Kale is also pretty high in oxalates, as are things like almonds, rhubarb, spinach, etc. So it's the whole plant toxin that we've never really thought about. Now, it's important to note, for the sake of accuracy, that humans do produce oxalic acid oxalate as a small byproduct of human biochemistry from the breakdown of proline and hydroxyproline, but it's a minuscule amount compared to what you can get from plants. Mm. If you go and you say, "I want to make a smoothie today," I'm going to put in almonds and beets, spinach, kale, a little turmeric and some berries, you could get over a thousand milligrams of oxalate, of oxalic acid in one smoothie. And there are documented cases of people having kidney failure with, you know, two or three times that in a day from oxalic acid. There are, and some of these people have GI issues and re, you know, reconstruction of their bowel that causes them to reabsorb more oxalic acid. But like, it is totally possible. There is an LD50. There is a lethal dose for 50% of the population for oxalic acid. It will kill you. Mm. People have gone to the hospital from eating sorrel or sorrel, which is a wild sort of plant that grows, you know, and is very high in oxalic acid. You could really put yourself in a dire straits by eating too much spinach. Okay. And yet these are foods we've been told are beneficial for right. us. In fact, we've been told these are foods that are probably the most beneficial for us.
1: I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to fumble my way through this next counterpoint. But I have been really interested in mushrooms and fungi over the last couple of years. Uh, Paul Stamets talks a lot about this. And one thing that I do know about how mushrooms interact with the body is that some some kinds will cause a reaction in your body, like an immune response in your body, because they'll have a certain amount of, for lack of a better word, poison that can make you healthier because of that immune response to it would there be any kind of benefit in eating something like vegetables because of the immune response that you could have and maybe maybe a better question is what are your thoughts on mushrooms and this interaction between something that could be toxic at a low level to give you a benefit long term similar to Oh, like a vaccine, uh, and I, I maybe just mixed a bunch of stuff up there. But do you get the the point of uh, eating something maybe that your body perceives as a little bit toxic could make you healthier long term because of the response your body has to it?
0: Vaccines work totally differently. Let's put aside okay, vaccines. Let's put, sorry. Let's, uh, let's put aside vaccines. Like I for said, now. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, yeah, let's put aside vaccines. Okay, for now. but the concept you're describing is let's just nor- stick with mushrooms. Yeah, well, let's stick with let's just for- stick with like. A little bit of a poison makes you stronger and then I'll get to mushrooms. Sure. So the concept you're describing is hormesis. And I, I think we've got hormesis all wrong. And in the book, I, I talk about two different concepts, environmental hormesis and molecular hormesis. And these are, this is a paradigm that I've really framed things in. And I think people are missing broadly. Molecular hormesis is sometimes called xeno hormesis. And I'll describe that. And I'll, I'll, you know, contrast it with environmental hormesis. So, in in the f- in the process of molecular hormesis, xenohormesis, you're eating a compound from a plant, like sulforaphane, for instance, which is a isothiocyanate from brassica vegetables. And that kale you ate, there was there was. Isothiocyanate. Of course, like, <laughs> so many big words in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's really no way to get around the big words, sure, right? Appreciate it. So there are these compounds, and we have been told by the likes of Rhonda Patrick and others that these things are good for us. They're they're hormetics. There's a, They're going to be a little bit of poison that's going to make you stronger. But but here's the problem: we've ignored many aspects of this. When these compounds come into our body, they are invariably immediately detoxified. We have been told that sulforaphane is an antioxidant, but nothing could be further from the actual organic chemistry truth. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. We're talking about the gain or loss of electrons. A molecule that steals electrons from other molecules is a pro-oxidant. You generally don't want molecules in your body that are going to create more free radicals or more unpaired electrons. So we've been told that there are all of these antioxidants in plants right? Except there are none of those. Plants don't contain anything that participates directly in human biochemistry to donate an electron. And so what's going on here is we have endogenous antioxidants in the human body, namely glutathione and other chemical systems like superoxide dismutase that manage our electron flow. Life is electron flow and life is oxidation and reduction chemistry, which is the gain and loss of electrons. But it's important for people to understand that for anyone to say that a plant compound is an antioxidant is a, is wrong. It's just, it's chemically, technically wrong. Plant compounds are pro-oxidants because they are plant defense chemicals. Sulforaphane is a plant defense chemical. So what sulforaphane does in the case of broccoli or cauliflower, that Kale salad that hopefully you'll never eat again after this interview with Dude, me. I have
1: a fridge full of kale and beets. I make famous beet tacos, and you're ruining my world right I'm now. I don't you. like it. I'm crushing you, you know, right It's now. like, it's, this is a great example of uh, that, like, people will forego good information if their identity is wrapped up in in a certain way of believing <laughs> things. My beet tacos are a primary form
0: of my identity right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, my brother. Yeah. Uh, I should have warned you. I sh- should have had you sign a disclaimer. For the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I will challenge. challenge I will challenge your paradigm. So tearing up right now. <laughs> so sulforaphane comes into our body. It's a prooxidant. It creates lipid peroxides. It creates free radicals. Again, this is not conjecture or opinion. This is scientific fact. It creates lipid peroxides. Now, in our bodies, we have this very clever system that senses oxidative stress. We have a clever system, and it's centered around a. A molecule called nrf2 and it's an antioxidant response system and when when our body senses that there is oxidative stress when our body senses that there are unpaired electrons free radicals lipid peroxides our body activates nrf2 which turns on genes that upregulate our own endogenous antioxidant system namely glutathione and associated enzymes like that so people are saying aha see it's hormesis it's sulforaphane upregulating our glutathione except There's more to the story that we've never been told, which is that just like every other xenobiotic molecule we put in our body, any medication you get at a pharmacy, there are side effects of sulforaphane that are invariably ignored. So you have to look at risk benefit. In the case of sulforaphane, it also competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and negatively affects the signaling in that critical gland. Now, so then you could say, all right, are the benefits of sulforaphane worth the risk? And I would say absolutely not, because the benefits are redundant. What I mean by that is there is a lot of good evidence to suggest that just by doing awesome things, what I call in a tongue-in-cheek way living a radical life, things that are actually environmental hormetics, sun, elevation, ketosis, fasting, heat, cold, exercise, you can generate oxidative stress without a molecule that has side effects. And that is going to upregulate your endogenous glutathione as well. And there are good studies to show that doing those things will give you plenty of glutathione. You will have an abundance of endogenous antioxidants. You don't need molecules with side effects to do this. That is where we've been led so wrong with regard to plants, right? Now, You could also say the same thing. If you're going to call sulforaphane a hormetic molecule, you also need to call alcohol, lead, and mercury hormetic molecules because they do the same thing. No one is microdosing cigarettes. No one is microdosing lead or mercury to get a hormetic benefit, but it works in exactly the same way. If you ingest mercury, you are causing oxidative stress. You are upregulating NRF2 because the system is doing that to get rid of that oxidate molecule, right? why are we consuming plant toxins thinking they are good for us? This is a silly misconstrual of the actual paradigm. Do you feel the same way about mushrooms? We can get to that. Sure. I, I, I do. And I'll elaborate on it, but I also think there's a nuance again. We're back to nuance. Damn nuance. I hate this.
1: There's a nuance
0: <laughs> between plants as medicine and plants as food that we will get to. Okay. I'm not denying that plant compounds can be useful as medicine, right? And, and, our ancestors have used them as medicine for many times, and I think there are many plant-derived molecules that serve a purpose in human society and medicine, and we'll get to that, right? But I do not think they are good as fuel or food. So in the case of sulforaphane, let's back up to that. Question for you. How much sulforaphane is in a broccoli sprout or a broccoli seed? Three. Three. <laughs> zero. I don't know. Zero. zero. and the reason I say that I, I, didn't, I didn't expect you to know but the answer is zero it's a trick question there is no you, you just brought me back to ninth grade they're like Kyle are you paying attention three <laughs> three point one four just say pie three point one four one six yeah, 3. yeah. Um, South Africa <laughs> all right so there is no sulforaphane in a broccoli sprout people are going wait a minute this guy's crazy he's stupid I know there's sulforaphane no there's no sulforaphane in a broccoli sprout until you chew it Because there's no sulforaphane in a broccoli sprout until you spring the booby trap, until you eat the broccoli sprout. This is what happens with brassica vegetables of all sorts. They have the precursor for sulforaphane, known as glucoraphanin, and an enzyme called myrosinase, and they're in different cellular compartments. And when you chew that broccoli sprout, when you assault the kale by chewing it, you create sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is a booby trap in the plant. It's not supposed to be there. A plant doesn't want to have sulforaphane because it would destroy the plant. It would create lots of free radicals in the plant when you chew it. So, or it would create a lot of free radicals in the plant. If it were present as it is, it's like a, it's like a booby trap. It's not armed. The bomb is an arm. The bomb doesn't explode until you chew it. Everything about that. The next time you're chewing broccoli sprouts or broccoli or kale, you and everyone listening to this can think about that. Like, Oh Wow. I'm making plant toxins while I'm chewing this. This plant actually doesn't want me to eat this. Kale doesn't love me back because kale is a plant leaf. It has no interest in you eating it. You might be able to eat it in a survival situation as our ancestors have with things like cabbage, which is another brassica. If you ferment it, guess what? Fermentation degrades glucoraphanin. Fermentation will decrease isothiocyanates. Fermentation will disarm the bomb doesn't mean it's even it's really that good for you it just means hey it's less toxic if you have to eat it in a pinch mm. you better ferment it right so this is the framework we're working with with plant toxins they are redundant benefit and the the same is true with so many of the molecules in the book i talk about resveratrol and curcumin the same is true over and over if you really look at the medical literature you can find repeatedly that these molecules have collateral damage they have side effects they have a package insert you know when you get a pharmacy prescription has a package insert that says this thing can cause muscle aches and memory loss and all these kinds of problems or stomach aches right these are the side effects or you hear an advertisement for a for a medication on tv because in the united states we're absolutely loony and we allow pharmaceuticals to do direct to consumer advertisements and there's that big disclaimer for humira which says it can do all these horrible things and you'll get you'll get tuberculosis and you'll get a pneumonia and you could die well, the same, things are, that's the, the same thing happens with plant molecules, except nobody has to do that because they're from plants. There's a plant molecule package insert of all the side effects that we're never told about. And the same thing doesn't exist for animal foods. So that's the idea there, that you're using these things to try and get a benefit, which you can get by living well, and you're forgetting about all the downsides. Now, again, like I said in the book, I've given people a blueprint for the more and least toxic plant foods. I think fruit is less toxic some people even react to different types of fruit. But if you want to eat plant foods for color, variety, texture, social interaction, great. Just understand where they are on the, on the spectrum and understand where you are personally in your own life. Make a quality of life decision. Understand how this might affect you. And if you're not thriving, understand that it could be hampering your recovery and or progress. There's a new sort of paradigm here of where plants and animals fit in terms of a hierarchy of relative nutritional value. Mushrooms are very similar. They're still rooted in the ground. Now, let's think about this. Mushrooms make toxins. There are a lot of freaking toxins. There's a lot of mushrooms that'll kill you dead, right? That'll kill you freaking dead. I saw a video of Steve the other day talking about a morel and uh, a mo- uh, mushroom that looked like a morel. This, mo- this other mushroom will kill you. There's no question that mushrooms make toxins and also that mushrooms encase their cells in a cell wall made of chitin, which humans can't digest unless we cook the heck out of it. So I don't think mushrooms are uniquely beneficial for humans either. I think that they have the same they participate or they sit within the same paradigm. There are compounds in mushrooms that may give us a benefit, but none of these benefits that I've seen are things you can't achieve just by living well, right? There's a study with lion's mane, which is one of the mushrooms people talk about a lot, that says, oh, it improves people with dementia. Well, how did you get dementia in the first place, dummy? Like, I mean, that's kind of a really harsh thing to say, but like, the reason you got dementia is because you were living wrongly, because you had exposure to, because you have metabolic dysfunction. There's really good evidence that Alzheimer's or you know these other dementias are connected with underlying metabolic dysfunction and so I didn't mean that to be to be harsh if it came off that way it was just kind of a glib comment but no but
1: you're stepping back a few
0: more steps and than saying, most people you,
1: do and asking how did it get to be this way
0: how did you get there in the first right. place you got to be there because of a problem that had a root that you can correct why do people take curcumin because they want to get rid of inflammation why are you inflamed in the first place What is causing inflammation in the first place? Do that. Don't take something that that gets rid of inflammation because that's your body's normal signal to you that something is out of balance. And don't you dare believe that curcumin is benign because curcumin has tons of other problematic things. Curcumin is this bioactive molecule, this polyphenolic molecule in turmeric, right? It's full of oxalates. There are all sorts of other negative negative effects, not benefits, to curcumin in the human body if you look at the medical literature. Resveratrol is the same way. People say, oh, it's great. It turns on sirtuins. It'll make me live forever. Except you can turn on sirtuins by fasting or being in ketosis occasionally, just like your ancestors did. And by the way, resveratrol is a xenoestrogen and decreases your androgen precursors, which is a bad thing for both men and women. Resveratrol also acts as a prooxidant and increases lipid peroxide. So why would you try and increase your sirtuins with resveratrol when you could just occasionally fast or skip a meal or... Go on a low carb day or two and get some sirtuin activation, change the ratios of NAD to NADH in a normal, evolutionarily consistent, ancestrally consistent way without any of the bad side effects. Is this making sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I appreciate it. It's actually um, when I I flailed my way into that last question um, about antioxidants, you explained it in a way that I did understand. So I appreciate that. A lot of words I don't get, but I do get the basic concept. Uh you are doing a good job of that.
0: Well, let me know if there's any words you want me to explain because I, <laughs> listeners will probably need those words explained too, but it's uh, what I am doing with my work is really challenging the status quo and saying we've got plants all wrong. Look, they're beautiful. They we need them on the earth. They they're not our friends if we put them in our mouth and chew on them. Generally speaking. And, and anyone who tells you otherwise, I, I want to debate them hmm. uh, and I will debate them because I think that that's, it's a really important that we understand this nuance because you know, we need to know as humans, what the species appropriate diet is. And we need to know what the best foods are for humans. And I strongly believe, and I've seen over and over the best foods for humans are animal organs and animal meat. And if you can't get the organs or you won't need a spleen or you won't need a liver, take the desiccated organs. Like we make it hard in soil. Get these organs in your diet. Get well-raised meat from farms like white oak or belcampo in your diet. Focus on those things. Understand that plants are not benevolent. They're not the superfoods. Liver is a superfood. Heart is a superfood. Spleen is a superfood. Steak is a superfood. Kale is not a superfood.
1: So I tend to have my first meal around noon. And when I came in here today, it was 11 a.m. And you said, hey, do you want some of these heart and soil uh, supplements. I said, I hadn't eaten it. I haven't eaten anything today. He said, oh, that's great. Tell me a little bit about fasting and how that um, has impacted your life. I've found an incredible benefit just with mental clarity, but I have not taken it to that next level of really understanding what it's doing to my body. So what what is the combination of like what, what happened to me today as I had not eaten anything for 18 hours and then I had some of the liver i believe i had the liver and uh beef organs beef organ yeah
0: so i was hoping that on an empty stomach we'd maybe get you a little buzz sometimes people when they take these supplements they get a little buzz because it's like the nutrients so you got to let me know if you feel that but mostly just teary eyed from now that I'm <laughs> going to have to clear
1: out my cabinet. I'm just like seeing curcumin turmeric. No, I'm just
0: in there in your RV, just like throwing your shit exactly. out of the Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I just walked in your RV and said, get this crap you're, out of here. You're Marie condoing my cabinet. I am, I am overhauling your, your, uh, your, your culinary regimen, whether you like it or not. So fasting, super beneficial. Um, I think that there's a balance. You can overdo fasting just like you can overdo overdo eating. Generally, within our westernized culture of today, people don't fast enough. They never have a period where they don't eat. And they never have a period where they don't have glycogen in their liver. Your body runs on a couple of different fuels. One of them is carbohydrates or glucose, which is stored as glycogen in your liver, another is fat. The reason we have fat is it's a spare sort of gas tank. You have two gas tanks in your car. Once you run out of glycogen in your liver, you start to run on stored fat, which is great because there are a lot of times in our life, evolutionarily speaking, that we were going to not have food every six hours or eight hours. Most people will run through their liver glycogen in eight hours or so, depending on what you do um, in terms of exercise. So so fasting, time-restricted feeding is a really great environmental evolutionary mimetic for hunting, feasting, fasting, feasting, and scarcity. And interestingly enough, tied into that are all of these conserved, unique molecular mechanisms of autophagy, cellular house cleaning. Our body tends to turn on cellular house cleaning functions at a very high level. I'm talking broad strokes now when we stop eating. So having time between your meals or having an extended period every day in which you don't eat is a really good thing for cellular house cleaning. All of our houses and RVs or wherever we live get dirty from an entropic perspective. Just, just living things get dirty. And our cells accumulate broken proteins and quote dusty corners, and it allows our body to to recycle mitochondria, to do mitochondrial to do you know autophagy in general, and use cellular organelles that that recycle broken or quote rusty kind of old proteins. is a good thing for us to be clean, and that's why we see so many clear benefits to fasting, to ketosis in some settings, or to overall. Um, Time restricted feeding. Now, I will say that I think you can overdo ketosis and I think that you can overdo fasting. We know that extreme calorie restriction leads to downregulation of our our metabolism and uh, downregulation of our own sort of baseline um, consumption. Uh, Our thyroid will sort of shut off and put the brakes on if we fast for too long or if we calorie restrict for too long. I think our challenge as humans in the midst of an abundance of 2020, having access to food most of the time is to give our body the nutrients it needs and to also give it periods of house cleaning. And so you don't want to overfast, but you also don't want to overeat. And a lot of people, when they think of a carnivore diet are thinking, isn't all that meat over-triggering mTOR? And it doesn't really, because if you pair it with periods of intermittent fasting, it's great. It's very evolutionarily Mm -hmm. consistent. That's exactly what our ancestors would have done. Hunted animals and then feasted. And what does your fasting look like? So I eat breakfast and a late lunch. I, don't, I like to have more time between my last meal of the day and dinner, or our last meal of the day and sleeping from a mm. sort of a sleep circadian perspective. There is some evidence that melatonin, which is one of these circadian hormones, helps us initiate sleep, is going to be um, opposed by insulin. So getting insulin at night with a carbohydrate or protein rich meal is going to potentially affect circadian rhythm. So I like to eat breakfast at eight or nine o'clock and then eat lunch slash dinner at two or three, have that be my last meal of the day. And it works pretty good for me. Mm. Now we can talk about what I eat. People are always curious about that, but it uh, it leads to a 18 or 16 hour fasting window and I wake up and even though, um, I can eat a variety of foods. I will almost always be in ketosis in the morning when I wake up and I'm getting sort of that autophagy versus, um, sort of anabolic versus catabolic, uh, cycling. So I think we should switch it on and off every day or every few days. But I think it's very valuable. I think that the thing you don't want to do is be eating all the time every day and never having a long fasting window. And we've kind of hinted at this earlier. We may or may not get into this in this podcast, but I think that a lot of people will run into problems with, um, glycemic maintenance with maintenance of, proper energy partitioning in the human body and adequate glucose in the blood with overconsumption of processed foods because of the way that vegetable oils like linoleic acid negatively affect our body's ability to partition energy constituents. So we can go down the rabbit hole later if you want, but anyway, I think that one of the reasons people can't fast is because they have too much linoleic acid in their diet, which is primarily found in vegetable oils like corn, canola, soy, peanut, safflower, sunflower, etc. So People might try and they say, I can't fast. I can't, I can't go more than four or six hours Hmm. without eating. And that's because I believe of the, the hypoglycemic or the way that linoleic acid really messes up our metabolism. What
1: does a standard breakfast look like for you?
0: So breakfast and lunch slash dinner look essentially the same. And I'm not advocating that everyone needs to mirror me. That's always sort of the the dangerous thing. When I describe my diet, there are lots of ways to construct an animal based diet uh, that's entirely based on animals or based on animals and the least toxic plants which I would consider to be, quote, carnivore-ish. The way I do it is detailed. So if you go to the hard and Soil website, you can see a video of what I eat in a day. But I eat two meals a day. I eat a little less than a pound of grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised red meat every day. I prefer ruminants. I prefer red meat because it eats a species-appropriate diet. A lot of chicken and pork does not eat a species-appropriate diet. I do not eat animals that eat corn and soy. So I also don't eat eggs from chickens that consume corn and soy, and when I'm eating eggs, I really only eat them seasonally. Um, I don't think eggs would have been something we have had we would have had all year round either as humans. So just kind of trying to refine it. I'm, again, also the astronaut. I'm the guy out there kind of writing books and thinking about this, trying to do the experiments and share the information with people. So the way I do it may seem a little bit extreme. I just think of it as intentional and a valuable N equals one little self-experimentation in my own test tube laboratory of my body. So I eat about um, a little less than a pound of meat twice a day. Um, I've come to eat a lot of stew meat recently because it's affordable and I like the way it tastes. I blanch it. So I'll make bone broth in my instant pot from trabecular bone. This is like knuckle bone or patella bone, and I'll use tendons. So I'll eat the tendons. I'll eat the bone broth. I get a lot of glycine and connective tissue. It's important to balance the amino acids that are common in muscle meat with the amino acids that happen to occur in connective tissue. We can talk about this methionine glycine balance. And then I will also eat organs at every meal. If I'm traveling or I don't have access to organs, I'll use our desiccated organ supplements. I like the beef organs and the liver and bone marrow. If I'm home and I have fresh organs, I will usually eat liver, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, testicle, thymus. If I've got it, I'll eat as many fresh organs as I can kind of in a few ounces of organs with my two meals. Um, And then I've had
1: coat and goat balls from a goat I shot
0: in Hawaii. Delicious. Yep. I love, I love testicles, man. They're super good. The best feeding them to other people too. I just, it's such a good party (laughs) trick. It's it's such a good party. trick. such a good party
1: trick. (laughs) Yeah. Slice it up. Hey, you want want some meat? I shot this animal myself. Oh wow. Thank you so much. Chewing on it. Those are the balls.
0: (laughs) I just tell them up front, I'm like, Hey man, are you, a, are you, are you like a savage? You want to eat some, you want eat some, you want eat some bull testicles with me? Yeah. They're like, they can't, they, they just can't tell if it's like homophobic or weird right. or, yeah. or it's going to give them like super virility and like mega, you know, mega sex. So I'm like, you just, you just, it's whatever, whatever sort of narrative you want about it. I think our ancestors ate, ate testicles thinking it would give them super virility. Um, so I eat all those when I can. And then, you know, the first, so I've been doing an animal based diet, carnivore diet for over two years now. The first year and a half, I had no carbohydrates in my diet. The last four or five months, uh, I wore a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor from a company called NutriSense. And I reincorporated some carbohydrates in my diet and found that it helped with electrolyte maintenance. A lot of people on long-term ketogenic diets run into problems with electrolyte maintenance. We need some robust insulin signaling to maintain sodium and the connected magnesium and potassium in our bodies. It just works way better. So thinking about carbohydrates, I... When I wore the CGM, I had some berries and some squash, which I would consider to be least, less toxic plant foods. I didn't like the way they made me feel as much, and I feel like I do better without fiber in my diet. There's a whole chapter about all the stuff in the book, guys, about fiber and all these things. All these are rabbit holes we could go down. I've actually found that raw organic honey feels best for me. So a lot of days of the week, mm. I'll eat some raw organic honey. Um and I really like the way that works for me. I feel like it um improved my metabolism a little bit. I was a little less cold after a mm. year and a half of essentially um just animal products and no carbohydrates. I was starting to feel a little chilly in San Diego from time to time and I um I the electrolytes got way better when I had some carbohydrates in my diet. I'll do about 100 grams of carbs a day. Like I said, I've worn a continuous glucose monitor with that, and my blood sugar did not go crazy. My fasting blood sugars actually went down. The postprandial, after eating blood sugars with honey, go up to about 120 and quickly come back to baseline, suggesting preserved insulin sensitivity. Carbohydrates do not make humans insulin resistant. This has been shown over and over. I really believe it's linoleic acid, which is breaking our metabolism. That's a really packed statement that we may have to unpack. Uh, on a future podcast, you can read all about it on my stuff, you guys, but basically I just want to debunk the notion or sort of, um, help to diffuse all of this fructophobia, all of this sugar fear. I'm not saying that processed sugar is great for humans, but I think sugar that occurs in fruit and natural foods like honey is evolutionary consistent and not bad for humans at all when eaten within reasonable quantities, as long as it's not causing the exclusion of more nutrient dense foods. Do you drink coffee? I don't No coffee. All right. So I think of coffee as a burned plant seed, which has many of its own plant toxins, acrylamide heterocyclic amines. I also don't like caffeine. I don't want to be dependent. I don't want my physiology to be modified negatively by a, like a methyl xanthine, uh, compound like caffeine. So right. I, and a, a lot of coffee is frankly polluted with, environmental problem, you know, as mold toxins or, uh, pesticides. I know there are cleaner coffees out there, but I don't like to be dependent on that kind of stuff. Mm. So that's the way my diet looks. I have a little bit of honey at every meal. I have organs. I have bone broth. I have suet. So I eat the kidney fat, which I think is particularly valuable for humans because of the stearic acid content. And, um, we've got some interesting stuff at heart and soil about stearic acid and the benefits of that. And, um, I eat the animal meat. So that's mm. what I do twice a day. Sir, you
1: wield language in a very impressive way and you are putting good work out into the world. One personal goal of mine with every podcast is to get the guests to talk about something that they haven't talked about on other podcasts and you're just knocking it out of the park one question after the next. So I'd like to finish the one, this one off by asking you about surfing.
0: All right, let's do it. Which
1: I'm guessing is something you haven't talked about on podcasts I don't before. think I've
0: talked about it on any other podcasts. So
1: when, how'd you start surfing?
0: So, um... Let's just be clear that I'm a very mediocre surfer, um, but I love it. So I moved to Seattle for residency at the university of Washington. And previous to that, I had a lot of winters as a ski bum. So I always had my quote winter thing. I was like, Oh yeah, it's getting cold. I'm so stoked for winter. And then summer would roll around when I was in Jackson hole or bend, Oregon. What am I going to do all summer? And I kept trying to find a summer thing that I loved. I was road biker for a little while. And I was like, man, I don't really like, like raw. I'm going to over this baloney i don't want to be a lycra warrior not to say that other people can't i just didn't like road biking then i got into mountain biking, and i was like ah i really like my clavicles intact i don't really like i just couldn't get into flow state mountain biking <laughs> easy to hurt yourself I, I just mountain
1: biking is a sport where you can go very fast without being good
0: yes i just <laughs> didn't it just didn't put me in the right mindset yeah. you know skiing powder snowboarding powder um it, it just gets you in that mindset and that's what i like about it and and mountain biking didn't put me in that mindset unless I had like the perfectly groomed trail that was like I was mm. making turns. So I just didn't, I, mountain biking didn't really didn't really grab me. And I went to Tofino on Vancouver Island one summer, the first summer I was in uh, Washington and I saw people surfing and I thought, why don't I do that? That looks cool. How old were you? Oh man, I'm 43 now. I guess I was 39 at the time. Nice. Yeah. And I thought, all right. So I went back to Seattle and literally the next week bought uh, four-three, a hooded four-three, and a... A 6'6 board Which is way too short for Way, my first, yeah. way too short For my first surfboard I can surfboard. tell you that It was it was fairly big I think it was probably can, 47 meters I
1: can talk about surfboards The way you can talk About the carnivore I know, diet I know I <laughs> know just, just come to me man I will clear out your surf shack You'll clear out my cabinet I know It'll be okay it'll,
0: it'll be a good mutual trade But so then You know And the Washington coast Is also really cold Yep And generally Really mushy Crappy waves But I loved it You know I was hooked immediately It was an adventure I had a truck With a a cap on it and a bed in the back and every freaking weekend and every time I could get out of Seattle and residency, which wasn't a whole lot, I was at the Washington coast and I was surfing really cold, really crappy waves, which is probably why to this day, um, now, uh, I believe I'm three plus years into my surfing uh, career. I am still wildly lackluster at it. Right. So well, it's,
1: it's good that you're taking a look at the environmental um, factors here and not thinking that you're just a bad surfer. This is like the guy who's just been eating sugar his whole life. And he's like, ah, I'm just unhealthy. My whole family's always been unhealthy. I have bad genetics. Yeah. I have bad genetics. It's like, uh, you know, uh, Fat people who also have fat pets. Right, it's like, Oh, your your pet's part of the same genetic lineage as you, <laughs> exactly. right? There's an environmental right. Yeah, we gotta get you down to Santa Cruz. There's some nice slow point breaks and get some long rides. i surfed there actually. I'll have you? Nice. Yeah, I
0: surfed a pleasure point. I didn't catch any waves because it was so crowded. And I wanted to surf at what's the other popular spot there? Steamer Lane. Steamer Lane. Yeah, but uh, also yeah. crowded. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I surfed north of there a little bit. It was yeah. Anyway, I've surfed a lot. Um, in in my life trying a lot. I just haven't had that many good quality waves. What do you like about it? The flow state. I mean, I love being in wilderness and even though the ocean is just a few yards from the shore, it just feels like this vast wilderness. And of course it's in the water. So it's calming. Um, just the cycling of the waves, the way it feels to go up and down. And I mean, it it probably took me a solid year before I was able to catch a wave and make Mm -hmm. a turn on the face. Um, I don't think I've gotten much better since then, but that was a really cool sensation to ride along a wave to see water moving up in front of me and forming a wave was like nothing else I've ever done. It was like skiing powder that was moving underneath me. So it's, it's, it it was like, it was, it's probably my favorite thing. It's also so evanescent and so hard to get. Like it's so much easier for me to put on a pair of touring skis and go ski powder. I just know what I'm going to get. I know this is the snow condition. I'm going to skin up this Ridge for two hours. I'm gonna get this crazy, amazing rundown. Surfing, I can like look at surf line all the time and like uh, maybe, and I go out there and I'm like, this isn't as good as I thought, or it's way more crowded, or. You know, man, like I just, anyway, just, you're having a bad day and it's really finicky, but it's just chasing. It's really fun. Well,
1: I didn't mention this before, but all of my podcast guests get a surf lesson. Amazing. Yeah. I'll take it. (laughs) You can have
0: that uh, card in your back pocket. I'll take it anytime. And our,
1: our boy, Kyle Kingsbury took his surf lesson last time he was in Santa Cruz and, uh, he did well. He caught a lot of waves. I was very afraid for other surfers in his path. (laughs) He was like a freaking freight train going down the line. I was like, out of the way. You got a UFC fighter headed straight for you.
0: You got to like drop in in front of him. Yeah, and exactly. Like clear, clear the path. Clear the path. <laughs> clear the path. Exactly. Yeah. I would be scared to see Kyle coming down. I would not drop in on Kyle Kingsbury. Yeah. But you know, hopefully he doesn't drop in on anybody else either. Who knows? But no, yeah, he, he had a good, uh, he did well. He's got a good center of gravity. Good etiquette. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And now I'm in Austin and I, I miss it. I've got a foil board. So I've got a, Oh, nice. That's fun. I've got an electric foil board. Cool. It's, it's not quite the same, but it gets me a little bit of that, like water flow type of thing. But surfing is beautiful. And, and the goal is to really get back to doing more of that stuff. Um, but right now it feels really important to get these kind of ideas out to people.
1: Yeah. Well, next time you need a day off and you're in California, give me a shout.
0: Yeah. Or we cross paths somewhere else because you're just this, I'm a, you're now the peripatetic The the, the van life. You're this traveling vagabond now. I don't think you'll be in, I think I might see you in, uh, at the coast of Texas before I see you in California, the
1: ambulatory
0: podcaster. Yeah. um, so where can people check out your book and check out more of your work? So the book is The Carnivore Code. The best place to find my stuff is at the Heart and Soil website, which is heartandsoilsupplements.com. All my podcasts are there. We've got lots of information there about nose tail eating, and you can link to all my stuff from there. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, brother.
1: That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a cover song of Ring of Fire by one of our listeners. And don't forget, you can send in a voice memo to info at kyle.surf. Just record on your phone. Let me know who you are, where you are, and if you want other people in your neighborhood to reach out to you include your instagram handle thank you once again to rpm training company for sponsoring this podcast if you want to get the best functional fitness workout equipment in your life and get sleep, go to rpm training type in the code name kyle 10 and get 10 percent off your order also if you want to sleep better and recover faster Go to scmedicimals.com, get some CBD, type in the code name KYLE10, get 10% off your order. Or if you just want to join our book club and get The Way of the Superior Man along with CBD every single month, new book that I send to you, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf. And seriously, thank you so much to everyone who is in the book club. It uh, really warms my heart, means a huge amount, and allows me to prioritize this podcast and keep these episodes coming at you every single That's it for now. I'll see you soon.
0: It's a burning thing
1: The taste of love is yeah, sweet. sweet
0: when hearts like ours meet. I fell for you like a child, oh, but the fire it went wild, went wild, went wild, went wild, went. Wild. went. I fell in the burning.
1: Fire yeah, I felt really burn burn a burning fire.
0: fire went down down the flames away fire burns, 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 ring of fire, ring of fire, I I fire. fell in the burning like a fire went down down the flames away, burns, burns, burns ring of fire.
1: i <laughs>